Welcome to a very special edition of the Remedial Film Class Podcast. I'm your host, Dan. And I'm Travis. I'm George. And I'm Troy Howarth. Hey, Troy's here. Hey, hey Troy. We brought Troy along today. Uh, we burned up a lot of favors to get him here uh, because we are finally making George watch The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And Troy, it seems you might have a special interest in all things Argento. Would you agree? Ah, uh, vaguely, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> How many pages is your book on Argento that you just released? How many pages? Huh. Uh, I guess around 430. It's, wow. a, it's a hefty volume, a hefty tome. I much so appreciated it. interested in Argento, <laughs> just a little bit. Just a hobby. Just a tad. <laughs> now, if people recognize your voice, Troy, uh, where have they heard you before? Uh, probably on the police scanner or um, uh, many, many audio commentaries, uh, as of last count, over 100 <laughs> so for various wow. different labels and different types of films, but uh, especially, I guess, what you would call European cult movies. Now, one of my favorite commentaries of yours is actually for this movie that we're going to be talking about today. So no pressure to George and Travis, but uh, Troy said the funniest thing. I've ever heard on an audio commentary in the middle of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Do you remember me telling you what that was, Troy? Jesus Christ, look at those glasses. Oh, that's the one. He's playing all the hits, guys. Oh, man. <laughs> Got a fanboy out for just a second that I'm going to return to form. Okay, I'm back. End scene. <laughs> so, unlike our standard format, because everything's being thrown uh, into chaos tonight, uh, we've already had... George and Travis watch The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. But as yes. a special bonus, we also had them both watch Blood and Black Lace, directed by Mario Bava, the first Jalo in a lot of ways. Debatable, but most people point to that as at least, I would say, the, uh, the signpost at the beginning of Jalo Town. Would you agree, Troy? Well, uh, yes and no. It's the first body count one, definitely. I'd say the first. The first one was Baba's previous movie, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. But I suspect most people would really more readily identify Blood and Black Lace because it's the first one that has the killer uh, dressed up in the black trench coat and the fedora with the mask and the black gloves and killing off all the beautiful women in stylized ways. So, yeah, that's that's the template, I think. It's always very difficult to pin something down in this genre to a singular event. So I don't even know if we agree to disagree. I think we are both right, If you, depending on how we frame it, right? Uh, Evil Eye, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, uh, Baba's First Jalo. But there were mysteries before that. When do they become Jalo, right? So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, definitely. We just, it's a shifting uh, thing. A shifting definition of what a giallo is. Now, luckily, most of our audience has heard me ramble on about these enough that that's probably enough context to get us rolling. Our Friday the 13th fall break last year where we made George watch every Friday the 13th movie and many movies that went along with the Friday the 13th movies like uh, A Bay of Blood um, and The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I think he about strangled me for making him watch all those. And I think I broke no, him. I think I no. ruined I Travis's life uh, showing Travis <laughs> that some of his favorite ideas were actually not that unique after all. Yes. So 
I think I'm going to get billed for Travis's therapy on that. I'm very sorry, sir. <laughs> I I am a uh, basically an Italian movie virgin, so I, it was all a surprise to me when I started. Not anymore. Stuff. Not anymore. Cherry popped. <laughs> so let's begin, George. First impressions of Bird with the Crystal Plumage on its own. You've had a lot of lead up to it. Did it meet your expectations or did I oversell it? Um, honestly, Maybe. I have no idea why this movie is important. That's why we're here. But I guess I'm going to learn that. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, I was, hey, listen. Oh. It's my job to be stupid on this podcast. This so. is true. He is the I mean, student. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. You're doing the thing, bro. You're doing the thing. Do you guys want my notes? Let's hear no. your. Are they funny notes? Are we gonna laugh when you go through the notes? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't. Troy already left. He's like, All right, <laughs> there was. <laughs> okay. Um, some of them are funny. Some of them are not. Okay, first note. I think it's like ten minutes into the movie. Not even. It's always a maniac. There's always a maniac running around. Yeah, they're in, these, in these Italian movies, it's always a maniac. <laughs> All right. Um. Hold on. Someone tries to kill you in the street. There's an old lady who witnesses it, and you don't call the police? Okay. Right? Okay. Um, flashback scene. I noticed that the victim on the floor of the gallery, 10 feet from the door, no blood on her stomach okay. in the flashback. I don't know if that was done purposely or not. That's a continuity error. Okay. Or a camera angle error. It's probably there. I, I doubt they did enough coverage that they would have had certain... Shots with new costumes? Go it's on. definitely not there. Go it's on. It's not there. Okay. Go on. Pervert lineup? Okay. <laughs> Thought I was going to see Fenster. Does everybody, does everybody know who Fenster is? I don't I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> my, my, I do not my, know. My favorite character from The Usual Suspects? Yes. When they're oh. in the lineup, and, and he's the one that says, give me the keys, you can like, what the fuck? Anyway. <laughs> okay. Del, the, was it Del Toro? I think. Yeah, Benicio yeah. Del Toro. Uh, Police Lab reminds me of the nerdy science chick from NCIS. You know, <laughs> the one with the black hair and the studded collar and the combat boots. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Yes. I, okay. I'm aware. Yeah. Like through, like through science, like tells you like exactly where this fiber came from. Like for right. this, like there's always one that yeah, has it all. Yeah. There. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All the information. Like this hair came from a camel that's only <laughs> that only exists. Uh, forget that, it. That, that appeared at the with the magi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's right. like she has like all the insight. She's the Cliff Clavin of the science department. Yeah. Antique shop owner is a close, close, close talker. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of the bartender that remembers everything from Law and Order. Okay. <laughs> You guys know what I'm talking about? The one that they always yes. find who's like, oh, yeah. yes, the woman. She walked oh, in. Yeah. She was five foot ten. She was wearing a blue shirt. I think she went to high school with my sister. There was a lot of that at the end of this movie. Yeah. A lot of that. Like, did, did you see the blonde woman? And it's like, oh, you mean the one that her name is this? And like, they had all this information. Oh, she's right there. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, what? I, I like it. Well, I mean, I probably shouldn't do my New York access, accent, but I'm going Uh-oh. to. Oh, New York accent. No. No. Yeah, yeah, he was in, yeah, yeah, I know him, he was a blah, 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 blah guy, yeah, did that. All right, okay, anyways, moving Sorry on. to our New York uh, listener. <laughs> or not sorry. Or not so many. Um, okay, so next, uh, I think next kill scene, that's what you wear to bed? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
he got then, him in mid drink on that one. That's yeah. good. And then yeah, and then um and then skip a skip a few, one, two, skip a few. Um worst, most conspicuous hitman ever. And then okay. he ends up not being so conspicuous. Right. But Interesting. But for a minute there he was very conspicuous. Yeah. Right? Okay. Now fast forward to the end. No, well, kind of the end. Okay. I don't know how much of this you want me to spoil or not. Hey, audience, we're not going to let George spoil it for you. If he says anything <laughs> spoilery, I'm going to bleep him like he just talked about. <laughs> now I'm going to have to <laughs> I'm going to have to bleep that okay. out. Okay, go ahead. I don't know how we can talk about this movie without talking about the end. Right. Anyway, I'm going to go for it. He's all in. The the scene it's it's actually right right before the end. The scene where the friend, I believe his name is Carlo, is in the apartment, and Sam just like starts like getting it on with his girlfriend while he's in the room, mm-hmm. and he's <clears throat> you know kind of like, all right, well, I guess I should just leave. Can I take this tape? I'm thinking at this time, okay, well that was a bit on the nose. The buddy recognizes the sound on the tape because he's a writer of books about rare birds. It's obviously a bird call. He's sitting there smoking a cigar. Boom. Right. Right? Connect that to the detective in the lab. And, you know, the guy's left-handed. He's He smokes cigars. He, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, rec- you know, he recognizes the bird call. So, like, hmm. And then he wants to take the tape. So, like, they're obviously setting it up for you that here's your guy. It's right in front mm-hmm. of you. Hmm. Which is what makes me so angry about the end. Because they threw a curve. You didn't like the curve? Well, there was multiple curves. It was right. twisty. I su- I suppose <laughs> it was twisty. <laughs> I suppose my biggest problem with the curves was that you know how like in like a Shyamalan film, the curve is there the entire time. Mm-hmm. You just don't recognize it. It's right in front of your face, but you don't see it. Maybe I'm dumb, but these curves were not foreshadowed at all. They just out of the blue. Yeah, just out of the blue. Last 20 minutes were just roller coaster. It almost made like the first hour and 20 kind of like, why did I even watch the first hour and 20? There was nothing that connected all this. Well, I'm looking forward to the schooling of this. Yeah, me too. It sounds like we've got a case of RoboCop here, Troy, where Mm. when we made... (laughs) George watched RoboCop. He hated every minute of it. And by the end of the podcast, he was part of Team RoboCop, I dare say. He was at least in the station. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was at least he was in the same book. Yeah, he had us. some not stock in OCP. He may not have been yeah. in charge of the company yet, but. <laughs> yeah. It, at the beginning, he was outside the library sitting on a bench. And <laughs> by the time we were done talking to him, he was at least in the same book with us. He wasn't fully in love, but he at least. Uh, Got it. He, he at least got on the bus. Yeah, he was on there. Yep. So one of the reasons, George and Travis, I had you watch Blood and Black Lace. And we're going to spoil that one here because we have to for the sake of this conversation. Did you catch that at the end of Blood and Black Lace, they basically pull a diehard on you? Hmm. You think the whole time that you're dealing with a psycho, sexual, deviant, serial killer. And then it all just pretty much turns into a bank robbery at the end. Right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. oh, these aren't terrorists. 
this is this is something different. So mm-hmm. what I want you to understand about Jalo up until this point, and Troy, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but don't correct me too hard because that'll hurt. Uh, but <laughs> before Bird, most Jolly, the sexy ones, the violent ones, the Baba ones, the you know the Lindsay ones, everybody, they all boil down to human greed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basically, Baba's films uh, weren't really dealing so much with the psychosexual type of uh, serial killer type thing. It, it usually, as you say, it boiled down to um, some elaborate plot, which had something to do with a more prosaic kind of a crime. But uh, ultimately, the uh, the real motivator is greed. And the same thing with all the sexy jelly that came out in the late 60s prior to Argento. Um, they were all basically predicated on that idea that people were just basically really uh, scummy and uh, <laughs> backstabbing mm. and uh, will do anything to get their hands on some desirable property or some, you know, uh, fortune or what have you. So, yeah, that was definitely uh, pretty much the case before Argeno came onto the scene. So when we talked about Halloween, uh, one of the things you guys discussed was that George was not shocked or surprised that he could like get up from bullet wounds because he knows having seen reference to 80s slasher movies that the killer is almost always invulnerable. And I told you that before Halloween, that really wasn't the case. And you were like, Oh, Mm. so my expectations were based on stuff Mm -hmm. that was, yeah. Same thing here up until Argento up until this movie, you're always waiting as an audience for the reveal of who is actually behind all this and where's the money, follow the money, now we find the culprit. And for the first time since Psycho, and in a you know much more amplified way, there really isn't a reason other than... Yeah, so hold on. I was going to ask that, like all this conversation leading up to it. Obviously, the reason why this one is special is because... It's, it's just a maniac. It really right. is a maniac. It's someone with a psycho, you know, psycho Issues, problem. Right. I did it's notice the classic situation of finding a movie to be cliched, not realizing that it's the movie that helped to set the cliche. So right. yes, right, right. when Which it came out in 1970, was. it was not a cliche. Right now, how when did Psycho come out? Because I noticed 61, I think. Okay, because I noticed 60. they did 60. They did the a similar thing here, you know, at the end of Psycho, they have... Explain the plot. Well, they explain... Uh, they the, get the, the psychiatrist the mental, in to basically yes. explain yeah, like everything. Yeah, forensic expla- explanation. Exactly. There was a very similar scene at the end here. Yeah. Also, when Sam's walking up the steps, I completely saw the investigator walking up the Bates yeah. home, home steps. Like mm. It was almost like a, a Spielberg dolly zoom. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they didn't do that. But it had that feel because the camera was going up the steps as he was going up the steps, and I totally had that feeling of, of when he was going. Same with Anime Vahar. There's a lot of movies that did that up the steps kind of shot. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, he got that from Psycho, definitely. Mm. Well, yeah, and it's it's disconnected to this film, but it's a, a typical because Argeno was a film critic uh, before he became a director, and years later he made a film in Pittsburgh actually with George Romero called Two Evil Eyes. It was an Edgar mm. Allan Poe adaptation. And he had um, Martin Balsam, who played that character in Psycho, in the okay. film. And he has a staircase where he's starting to go up the stairs. And you think, <laughs> oh, no, he's going to get stabbed again. So it's it's kind of a nice little um, uh, tip of the hat, I guess. 
Now, did he become typecasted as the guy to go up the steps all the time? <laughs> well, it's he, like, oh, he well. Did definitely, he did definitely spoof that at least once or twice in his life. <laughs> it's funny. I was getting, I mean, I'm a student to this, uh, these kind of movies, too, and I think I understand where George is coming from because I have a lot of movie references, a lot of, like, American movie references, but I don't have any reference for these foreign films. So when I watch them, my biggest pet peeve is acting. Like I, I just have mm. hard, that's my biggest thing. The acting in this one was so good though. And and I'm watching and it's just and I remember in the seventies there was a lot of movies where everything is just especially like with hammer films too, the it's overacting. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're losing pur- me. You're losing me. You're on losing purpose. me. <laughs> on purpose. No, it's done on it's done on purpose. Like it's it's almost like it's exaggerated stage acting to it's almost I, like stage acting on camera. No, nah, I don't find it that way personally. Okay. I think when it when it comes to the Italian films though to get back to those I I think the problem is it's not so much the acting it's the dubbing which creates okay. a little bit of a a um it's a barrier that's difficult to cross and it was tough for me when I first started watching these films. I can remember when I was little when I first started seeing some of these movies. Uh, the artificiality of the dubbing, um, right. th- th- there's a disconnect that was very, very tough for me to get over for a long time. I remember when I first saw this film uh, back, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, uh, I had much the same reaction. I thought, oh, you know, it's 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 overacted or the, the acting. And it, it's funny because now when I watch it, I think the dubbing on it is so good. <laughs> I think right. because... Uh, the dubbing later, uh, funnily enough, in some of the later movies that came out in the 90s and beyond, the quality went really, really downhill. The funny thing with this one is that the same um, the same vocal actor does most of the voices in the mm-hmm. film, apart from Tony Misante, who plays Sam, who dubbed himself, uh, and Susie Kendall, who plays his girlfriend, who has pretty much a nothing role in the movie. Um, everybody else is dubbed by other actors, and uh, the the actor um, voice actor named Robert Rietti uh, dubbed most of the characters, putting on various different types of accents. So mm. I can understand. I can definitely understand why, if you're not accustomed to it, it's going to be jarring, and it takes a while to get used to that. I I, um, I can totally agree with that, and I I assume that's what it was, because it's the performances are there facially. Uh, visually, their their movements also, but yes, it is it's it's a it is jarring to hear yeah. it and see it. Yeah. It's almost like when you my wife flips out whenever we watch something on Netflix and the lips don't match up just the just a little yeah. bit. She's got to turn the TV off. She's like the lips aren't matching, and, yeah. and it's, it's almost like it's, the same thing there. It's a tough, and it's even it wasn't just you know I should clarify this too. It wasn't just the low budget movies that were like this. The big films too, Italian films in general were dubbed. Mm-hmm. Um, they and that had a lot to do with practical concerns uh, after World War II. The sound stages had been sort of bombed out and so forth. There really wasn't much in the way of uh, soundproofing, and um, in order to get some of the really extravagant camera movements and things like that that they got, they just didn't worry about recording a direct soundtrack, and they would just dub it in later. Dub it in and, later. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like an art. the Sergio Leone westerns, uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Same. Same thing. Um, right. And if you're, again, if you're not used to that, it can be. It, it's definitely very jarring. So I can't fault anybody for finding that to be a problem because I do think it's something you have to kind of work at. If you're interested in the films and decide to keep coming back to them, um, it's worth doing that. Um, but, you know, some people just can't get past that. And I, I can understand that. 
I can I, I in my defense I think because I watched it twice. The first time it was definitely like a wow whoa. Second time I watched it, I knew what I was watching, so I could pay attention more and kind of look past some things. Yeah. So I have a, a quick question for you, Troy. Did you did you say that the entire thing is dubbed in both languages? Hmm. Oh yes, in in any languages. Um, I'll, wow. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, again, this is not just the um, the low budget stuff. A director like Fellini, uh, who is regarded as one of the great filmmakers of all time. He would often cast amateurs who did who weren't actors because they had interesting faces, and he would mm. literally tell them, "Count, you know, turn your head here and then say one, two, three, four, um, you know, mm. and we're just going to dub it in like every language." So a lot of the um, a lot of the genre stuff was really geared, and that includes the westerns too. They were geared towards an English language audience because they figured they would make more money that way. So they would often shoot them in English. Um, most of the actors in Bird are actually speaking English, but they're being mm. dubbed later on. So Tony Masante, for example, he's, you know, his lip movements match and everything. He's speaking the lines that he spoke on set, uh, whereas some of the other actors perhaps might have been speaking in Italian. And they find a way to kind of sync things up and match them up. But if you're, again, if you're not used to that, you if you notice that it gets a little, get a little loose at times and the uh, the movements don't always match up, you know, I think of some of the supporting characters, like the, um, the 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 guy in the antique shop, for example, who's a German actor. Um, I can I can see where you know if you're not used to that, you might be watching and say, "What the hell is this?" You know, <laughs> I'm used to it, so to me, it's not a problem. Right. I find it I find it very um, well. It's almost normal to me at this point. At the same time, it drives me nuts when people talk about, "Oh, you should watch it in the original Italian." It's not, many of them weren't no. really shot in Italian, and they're also dubbed as well. So it really depends. We mentioned Blood and Black Lace before. That's a movie that I think works much better in Italian because the English dub on that I think is very wooden. Um, but Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I watch that in English every single time. Hmm. And Deep Red yeah, is very actually, much the same. The Deep Red and Tenebrae both have fantastic English dubs. I never hesitate mm -hmm. to recommend, because when you're first bringing new people into this kind of genre, that is something you have to address up front. You know, they're going to look like yeah. they're speaking English and it looks like the sound is off, but just go with it. It'll be yeah. fine, right? And, and I don't like reading during the movie because I, I like watching performances. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll watch their face and I'm like, wait, what, what did they say? <laughs> so then I yeah. have to go back. So I kind of, when uh, Dan was saying, oh, you got to watch this, I always say, is there an English track? Because... I don't want to read. <laughs> it yeah, just, I, it depends. It depends on the film. Um, some of the early Bava films do work better in Italian for me. Um, right. Whereas some of them are, are perfectly fine in English, um, you know, and especially when they had English or American actors in them who were, you know, providing their own voices like Tally Savalas and, and Lisa and the Devil, for example. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's always a little weird when you watch and you know a familiar actor in a movie where he's dubbed by somebody else, and that can be a little <laughs> jarring yes. too. But you know, mm. again, that's that's something you just there's a lot in these movies, um, and a lot of the the things that were being brought up as far as you know George's uh, issues <laughs> with aspects of the film. A lot of them 
uh, you know, a lot of it really does come down to you just kind of have to go with it with these movies mm. and not overthink certain things. Because yeah, that's, that's a, his problem. That's a mistake I I make on a regular basis. <laughs> well, and it's Pretty not. Much you're movie. not. You believe me. You're not. You're not unique in that by any means. Many people do well, that, and it's one of the reasons the Jalo films. A lot of people who are really into classical murder mysteries hate Jalo because very often they cheat. And very often they don't make logical sense. I've often said they make emotional sense because they're going for a very specific effect that if you just get on board with it and go with it, oh, it really plays out in a really cool way. But if mm -hmm. you sit there and think, would somebody really do that in reality? Hell no. So if you start getting <laughs> yeah. bent, you know, bent out of shape about things like that, they're not going to work for you. And again, that's that's something that you either, you know, if you're eager to get into these films and want to explore them more, um, you know, that's something that you kind of get used to, or you just don't, and you just say, you know what, these movies aren't for me. And okay, yeah, like for example, I'm watching the movie with my wife, and she keeps asking, why is he getting involved in this murder yeah. mystery case? Yeah. Why are the cops letting him do it? I was like, just, just, just go, go with it. it. It's just, it's <laughs> well, the movie. Like you mentioned, you mentioned before point. about the police, and that's a funny thing because Hitchcock did that a lot too. Hitchcock said the. Characters in my movies don't call the police because the police are boring. Um, and that was <laughs> mm. very often true with Argento as well. Although Argento does have in this film, but probably my favorite character in the movie is the inspector. Yes, yes. Who I think Definitely. is actually depicted as pretty darn good at his job. And he's, mm. he's yeah. kind of wryly funny and a very good performance from an Italian actor, a very distinguished Italian actor and director named Enrico Maria Salerno. Um, I really like him in that role. And I think he steals quite a few scenes yes. and uh that's an unusually good policeman character in one of these movies very often when you see the police in these movies you're <laughs> like oh can we get it and blood and black lace is a perfect example i adore that film i have really you know I, th I think it's a phenomenal film but the police are deliberately depicted as boring in that movie because right. we kind of want to get away from the police and get back to the really cool stuff so that's you know mm. uh very often in these movies it's true the amateur detective in these movies is very often throwing himself into a situation that he should not be doing. <laughs> and it's right. like, why is he doing this? Well, because it's in the script. That's pretty much yeah. why. Yeah. yeah, don't ask. Just and go with that, it. That was my, when I watched uh, Blood and Black Lace, I had a Knives Out kind of feel, like or even Clue, the movie mm. Clue. So mm. it's like, I had the frame of reference American-wise to understand why they were doing what they were doing and enjoying all right. the character development and the interaction and the puzzles and the pieces and everybody you know everybody being targeted as the killer and they're mm -hmm. doing it on purpose mm -hmm. the scenes are cut just right oh this person's coming out of that door well they obviously did something she's standing mm -hmm. by the car she obviously did something but mm -hmm. they're just playing with your uh your what yes. i call it your georgism you know yeah. your, your thought of yeah. what's going on uh yeah that i'm assuming this is happening because that's what that's what i would do yeah. and then they totally right. flip it on you so right, I enjoy that. There's always there's always the red herring close-ups of yes. people looking shifty for no real reason. So much but side it's, you know, it's part of the fun. <laughs> that was the thing, like the the, the long glares, and uh, mm -hmm. I think at Blood and Black Lace, the the first guy that you meet is the boyfriend of the girl, and yeah, I'm like how did Nicolas Cage get in this movie? Like he was just totally <laughs> like Nicolas Cage's doppelganger, and he's even doing the facial over exaggerations and all that stuff. I'm like, okay. He's going to be the mm -hmm. close-up guy of this movie. And then, oh, yeah. before I knew it, every guy was the close-up guy in this movie. <laughs> it was like, mm -hmm. I was waiting for the... Da -da! 
music like every time they look and they do this like stare <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, they're just trying to make you think everybody's killing everybody <laughs> and then at yeah. the end uh, it's just a you know a love you know, love the, uh, what heist. do you call it yeah bank heist yeah, basically, basically, yeah. And that, as we were saying before, that was kind of typical of the Italian thrillers before Birth of the Crystal Plumage, which is what really kind of introduced the idea of the psychopath. So, yeah, nowadays, looking at it in the year 2021, um, you know, you've seen this a thousand times before, and you might be like, ah, you know, what's what's so special? But if you put it into context of viewers going to see the film in 1970, eh, it was a very different story. Now, one thing I think would Absolutely. blow Travis's mind, because Travis has a background in theater and acting. Uh, Troy, can you talk about the Tower of Babel aspects of making an Italian movie in the 60s and 70s? Well, I mean, it was just, it was total, <laughs> it was a beautiful period in the sense that, the you know, a lot of it came out of the fact that a lot of the American studios were going over to Italy uh, and Spain to make films because they had all these wonderful locations and, and scenery um, that were, you know, you didn't have to build a ton of sets. You could go on location right. to Rome and find all these wonderful palazzos and villas. And, and, I mean, it was just extraordinary. All these Italian westerns, which, funnily enough, weren't most of them weren't shot in Italy. They were mostly shot in Spain, um, various different places. It kind of vaguely looked a little bit like the, uh, you know, kind of the borderland area around Texas, um, you know, Mexico mm. and so forth. So there was a lot of money that was flowing through big American productions that were going over there like Ben-Hur and Cleopatra. And there was a ton of Italian craftspeople who were extraordinarily talented, very, very good at making films that looked great. You know, even if you don't like these films, very often most people will at least say, well, it was really well photographed. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> that's a given because they, they had the best technicians in the world. And because there was so much productivity and so much was being churned out, you could get really phenomenal craftspeople working on little low-budget movies for a couple of weeks before they went off and made the big, you know, the big super production that was over there that was going to, you know, either an American film or a big Visconti production like uh, The Leopard, for example, the big multi-million dollar type epic type of scenario. So, I mean, it was just an extraordinary run of uh, creative people that were, um, you know, r running amok, really, in Italy at that time, mm -hmm. making films. Um, they were very, uh, also a lot of fun to make because the attitude was very relaxed compared to what it was in Hollywood. Uh, because they weren't that fussed about sound recording, uh, for example, there was the, um, the director Ricardo Freda would very often have his dogs with him on the set. And uh, Brett Halsey, uh, who appeared in some of his films, told me that it took a lot of getting used to, you know, having come from America, working at Universal, to going and being on a soundstage where this director's dog is howling all the time because of all the noise the camera is making and you have to give a performance and then eventually you realize you know what i can do it you know everybody got yeah. used to it and pitched in um there's the running joke in a great um billy wilder comedy from the 70s uh, that was shot in italy called avanti a movie starts jack lemon i highly recommend it very funny movie mm. And uh, there's this running joke about lunch. Um, you know, we're, we're on lunch and well, you know, how long? Oh, two, two or three hours. You know, we like to make our pasta and drink our wine, <laughs> make love to our women and like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so it was like that. It was very much like that and uh, very relaxed kind of an attitude, very improvisational. Um, Bava very famously on, on at least a couple of occasions gathered his crew 
uh, on the first day of filming and, and held up the script and said, do you see this? And then he threw it to the ground and said, yeah. we're not going to pay attention to this piece of shit. Um, you know, <laughs> and he would just improvise something. And he came up with wonderful things. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers that or not. But it's I just you, it was this extraordinary period. That Baba anecdote, I mean, five dollars for an August moon makes more sense. Mm-hmm. A lot more sense. Mm. We used to have a director uh, when people couldn't get off book. And he'd be like a month in the rehearsal and they're still reading every line in the script. The director would just say, leave your scripts at home. You know the character. Mm-hmm. We're just going to play. You know, it, yeah. it gets people used to, and then you start knowing who you are and why you're saying what you're saying mm. in your own words. Yeah. Interesting. And then you go back to the script and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, there are different approaches. I mentioned Billy Wilder. So, I mean, you know, he, of course, was very famously not just a director, but he was a, he was a great screenwriter. And uh, he was very particular that every line be said exactly as written. If a right. single word was changed, he would say, no, I spent months getting this just right. I don't want you changing it, which is fine when you watch his movies and you realize, okay, yeah, I don't think you could have improved on that. Whereas directors like Bava very often said, mm, you know, this script isn't so hot. We can do better. Let's let's make something up as we go mm. along. And uh, sometimes, you know, the seams sort of show um, $5 for an August moon is a good example where the plot doesn't quite come together because it was sort of ad-libbed and, you know, not all the I's are dotted, not all the T's are crossed, but, you know, it's still pretty wonderful. So I, you know, I might, forgive it. I might like Five Dolls better than Lisa and the Devil. Is that a sin? I feel like that's a sin. That is a sin, but yeah. I do love the film, so I'll forgive you. Okay, good. Also, the end of Bay of Blood. I always thought, man, they were just on set and like, how do we really put a, how do we put a, a final note on this. Hey, we got this scary oh, yeah. looking kid. Why don't we give him a, a gun and make fun of America? Oh. Yeah. yeah, it pretty <laughs> much was. It pretty much was a, a little bit of an ad lib, which is wonderful. Yeah, we actually, uh, we didn't watch Bay of Blood. We watched uh, clips of Bay of Blood clips in of long Bay form on the podcast because they just, before we did any more Friday the 13th, they just had to know, you know, especially <laughs> yeah. Travis, who's such a fan of part two. I think uh, he's in your top two or three, right, Travis? Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's my favorite. Definitely. But just seeing that and then juxtaposing it with uh, the town that dreaded sundown and being like, man, they just like averaged these two films together and out came Friday part two and it was great and <laughs> well, we love being, it. But... Being an artist, I enjoy inspiration. I, I When I see it, oh, well, I'm good with it. But steal. when it's plagiarism, I hate it. But when it's <laughs> when it's a, an homage, I'm good. Or when it's, if it's lifted, it's fine. If it's done if you're well, you're going to steal, steal from the yeah. best, uh, and steal it I'm right, sh- do it right. I'm sure you know the story that uh, Bay of Blood was released in America at one point as Last House on the Left Part Two. Yes, mm. uh, we talked through about the that. same company, yeah. same company that put out Last House on the Left, and uh, of course that's a company that Sean Cunningham uh, had right. a hand in. I'm sure he was aware of it. Um, he said he never saw it at that time. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But yeah, there's there's some similarities. But you know, I I enjoy them on their own merits. Um, you know, in different ways. Bava's film's a black comedy. Um, the Friday Thirteenth movies aren't really black comedies as such. Although Part Five is all kinds of funny, and and I'm very <laughs> fond of it. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, Savage Streets this week just because I yes. had more Danny Steinman was on. Uh... Blu-ray, so mm-hmm. I had to had to venture down that path, and my goodness, that man. He, he was something. He made I like every part film five. Count. I really do. <laughs> oh, we're big fans. Well, at least I'm a big fan. I don't know about these guys. I, I love it's, five. It, 
for what it's it the is. Hall- it's the Halloween 3 of the series. It's the one that actually dared to do something different, mm-hmm. and everybody hates it, but I like it. Not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's one of my favorite masks, and it's so it's it's exactly what George was talking about. It's so blatantly in your face the whole time that that's not Jason. Mm-hmm. Oh God! Like from, well, look at the from the get go. Yeah. Look at all those lingering close ups of the uh, the creepy uh, ambulance uh, EMT. Right. You know, <laughs> you, it's there. It's it's right in your face. I think that's the thing too. Is what pisses some people off is they they don't realize. Oh, uh, you know, until it's done that they've been had, and then then, right. then they get bent out of shape. Well, I mean, you know, you <laughs> fell for it. Yeah. That's how I felt when I saw Sixth Sense. I'm going to give <laughs> George a lot of homework, I think, throughout this episode. And one thing you need to do, George, watch the opening yeah. scene of this movie again. Because I want you to see that they do not cheat. Everything you needed to catch on to how mm. this movie was going to go is available to you in that opening murder scene. But you just have to be looking for it. And you weren't looking for it the first time. Some of these movies do cheat. Uh, and some of them get oh, some of them, yeah, so close which to the it, line. Which, which murder's the first murder in behind the glass in the in the art gallery? Well, it, you, it opens uh, with the killer is is sort of stalking the one victim that we don't see getting killed, right? Right. And then from there, it it ends up with with uh, Sam witnessing the attempted murder, and and it all goes from there. You're talking um, about Dan, the attempted murder. I have to yeah, watch the again. woman yes, with the, the blood. The attempted murder. In oh, the yeah, art. it's okay. all there. It's there. Everything you needed was it's in all that there. scene, and. I think about Case of the Scorpion's Tale when I think about cheats. And I don't know if you'd back me up on this, Troy, but there's one scene that you could, ar- like a politician or an attorney would argue that it's not a cheat, but it's like a, a space-time continuum assumption cheat, right? Like they, it's kind of like, well, not, not unlike the Silence of the Lambs a bit, where it's a cheat, but it feels good, right? But there's a point where one suspect is in a place and then cut to he couldn't have been there because he was in a place, but there's a time shift right. that they don't tell you about. Well, they do something similar in Tenebrae, of course. and uh, We don't talk about it, Tenebrae it also... yet, Troy. Shh. They haven't, <laughs> no, haven't seen, yeah, they, haven't seen we're, Tenebrae. We're almost there. I sent almost them a Blu-ray it, it all... of Tenebrae. We're going to go into that one, Virgin. <laughs> it also goes back to a Hitchcock film from the 50s called Stage Fright, which a lot of people were really bent out of shape because... Uh, without wanting to give too much away, there's a flashback that is a cheat. Um, it's totally fair mm. in context because of how it's being done and who's who's telling the story. It is perfectly fair, but a lot of people were not happy about that, and Hitchcock, you know, sort of apologized for it. I don't think he should have, though. <laughs> I think it actually works. Mm. What was the cheat in Silence of the Lambs? Uh, the uh, doorbell thing. The doorbell. Because it's not, a, oh. you know, you they build this tension purposely edited. Yeah, it's it's an intentional, you know space or uh, yeah a space jump where you're in his basement now they're at the door now they're in the basement now they're at the door and it builds a certain kind of tension and it pays off well but mm-hmm. in a lesser movie you would say "Ugh, guys <laughs> i didn't think that was a cheat at all Wait, explain to me how that's a cheat because at some point they you will see a viewer. movie that tries the same thing but doesn't handle it well and you're gonna be like oh my god really we're not even oh guys Okay. Uh, well, anyways, that got me. So, like in Sixth Sense, they they show you. I keep bringing that up, but it's kind of in the same uh, realm. Mm-hmm. Like y- the whole time, they show you it's constantly. In it's in your face. It's there, and you're just watching a different movie than what he's showing you. The so first then, time. when you, yeah, so when you <laughs> finally know it, clearly she's arguing with a ghost at the table. Whoa! But he reaches spoilers. for the bill right. 
Just kidding. Uh, well, yeah, I support. think everybody's seen that in the Titanic sinks too. <gasps> right. um, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, all those things—it's—it's it's just sleight of hand. That—that that scene was the scene that I figured. It I out? got it. Yeah, okay. because when she's when she's like ignoring him, you're supposed to think, "Oh, she's ignoring him she's because off. she's so pissed off." Right. But you know, I'm thinking, you know, he's she's not talking to him. Like the kid who sees dead people is the only one that he's talked to this entire movie. That but that was George. Dead. That was George watching that movie. I, like, I bet that motherfucker's dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I figured it out when the ring rolled across yeah, the floor. Exactly. That's, That's what why most people. And did, I'm like, yeah. God, oh, he got well, me. I didn't figure it out, but I thought it. I was <laughs> right, like, right. I bet that motherfucker's right. dead. So I mean, they do that in these. From what I, I mean, these these two films that I've seen, they <laughs> they do that a lot in these movies. It's just a lot of things going on on purpose. Sleight of hand. Figure this out. See, I like you that kind of stuff. Out. Though I'm fine with it. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff where you should have seen it and you didn't. I like that. Unless you're watching yeah. Ellie's, which was just <laughs> it was just a smorgas- smorgasbord of just hey, everybody's killing everybody, but there's only one person doing it. Mm. But right. well, the, the best die. the best example, and I won't say what it is because it you know I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but the best hidden in plain view clue is is definitely still Deep Red. Oh, now okay. actually, yes. uh, have you both watched Deep Red now? I'm almost, uh, I had to come off of that to, to do the homework for this episode, Shaking so I will head. be watching that. Deep Red is so good. Mm. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Best soundtrack. That was the first, my first Jalo. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> it was mine, too. Uh, I came to the Jalo because uh, I was into zombie movies, and my local mm. Best Buy back in like 2002, 2003 had Zombie by Lucio Fulci who I had no idea who that was, but it was so graphic and violent and full of boobs mm. and violence nice. that I just, I, I looked up everything Fulci did and I read about him online and I thought, okay, this guy's great. Ooh, they keep mentioning this Argento guy. And then through Fulci, I got to Argento. And God, that was 20 mm. years ago, guys. <sighs> I'm surprised I'm just coming to this now. And, I'm not. And I'm, kick, <laughs> I'm kicking and screaming. Huh? Like, I definitely had not as much trouble watching Lace as I had watching... Uh, bird but after the second time i watched it I, I knew my problem was what we talked about yeah whenever i watch a, a film that's you know done in a different language i like to watch it in the native language right. first and i didn't even realize that a lot of that is dubbed anyway but i think maybe it's dubbed better i don't know right but like i watch a korean film i watch it in korean i read the subtitles i watch it again it, you know i well, part of that too could be, you know, if you're watching if you're watching it subtitled and you're not to a place where you can kind of tune the subtitles out and, you know, pay attention to the mouths, you're not noticing that, that lip right. movements right. don't match because you're you're reading it. Yeah, so I like to watch the subtitles first and then I watch the movie without the subtitles and I just, you know, I've already read the movie, so I know what's going on. Right. But uh on this one when I was watching it I started watching it in Italian and reading the subtitles and my wife says their lips are speaking English. Yes, they were. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right. "Oh, well, let me switch over to English." And even that was <laughs> you know, know not not really great. Well, what was but the I was other like, "Yeah, whatever." Watched. I just kept going. Uh the uh what have they done to your daughters? Yeah. Yes. I had the same problem with watching that. It, it's just it's, there's something about foreign films with me that I will definitely get there. But yeah. it's just it's shell shock for well, me having it, a, a little insight and thank you for that troy about like right. why it is that way it's much more forgivable now no i believe right? that 
I believe yeah, that. I mean, it became it became almost a point of pride with some people. Um, Fellini, for example, really, he loved the artificiality of dubbing. He thought that was just another part of the process. It was another layer that he could play with. Um, other directors, like Bertolucci, tried introducing more sound recording, direct sound recording, because he felt that was something that was lacking. Um, so it all depends on your perspective. But yeah, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why that was the case. And it was the norm for many, many years. And, uh, uh, you know, more recently, the films very often are shot with a lot more in the way of, of direct sound. Um, but depending on whether they feel the accents are too much for an American audience or whatever, they may still go back and, and revoice certain actors. Hmm. Now, one thing that might just knock Travis on his butt Travis, imagine you're on set, you're across from me, you deliver your line in English, realizing mm-hmm. that they're all just looking at your face, right? Now cut to me and I go, man no giallo. and you're like, oh <laughs> shit, that guy spoke shit. Italian. What do I do? <laughs> but a lot of actors, right? Is, is this correct? Right? I put this, that a lot of actors just spoke their native tongue to get the emotional facial acting down so they're more facial comfortable. Acting, and then yeah. because they're dubbing it in the end, it doesn't matter. It depended. Um, a lot of a lot of them would speak English on set if they were comfortable speaking English. Um, actors who weren't comfortable speaking English might speak their own language. So, you know, some of these movies are a real kind of a melting pot of different nationalities. And uh, I always remember hearing a story about um, uh, one Sherlock Holmes film that was made in Germany back in the '60s. Uh, it starred Christopher Lee as Sherlock Holmes, and. Uh, mm. There were actors speaking English, there were actors speaking French, there were actors speaking German, there was uh, at least one, I think, speaking Spanish. And one of the English actors on the film was totally (laughs) just lost in this. And he went to the director at one point and said, can you please tell so-and-so to stick his finger up his nose so I know when he's done? Because I don't know when to speak. (laughs) I can can totally buy into that. Like, you have cues, you have... You have dialogue cues, and if you don't know what the person is saying, and you know some actors will say, "I like when someone comes to the set to do the, what do you call that when when they're off camera?" Yeah, uh, doing feeding the lines off camera because you're getting that emotion from that actor, which allows you to get up your performance. If, the, yeah, what? I was gonna say, what does the uh, what does the pimp say in this one? Whenever he's so he doesn't so stutter. long. Yeah, so just so. say so long after every line. <laughs> so long. <laughs> so long. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I can imagine if you don't know what the person's saying, that it does affect your performance. Cause, Absolutely. Because it's, it's an exercise in acting, in listening. You have to listen to what the other person's saying. You don't want to sit there and think about, okay, when he says the thing, I have to say this. You're going to listen yeah. for the, the thing, but you also have to hear what they're saying because you have to react Appropriately. appropriately yeah they change their delivery same line they change their delivery that should change your performance but if you don't know what they're saying well, yeah. and that was a problem that argeno had when he came to america he, he did a couple of films in america in the early 90s and he found himself working with harvey Keitel on a film at one point and uh it was tough for him because argeno speaks functional english he doesn't speak it fantastically fluently but he he knows enough to get by but there's Harvey Keitel coming in, being Harvey Keitel, and he starts mm. to improvise and ad lib, and he's like, uh, "No, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing." Yeah. So uh, it was frustrating for him too. In the same way, back in the '60s when Clint Eastwood was doing a lot of films in Italy, he never learned to speak Italian, but he he learned to understand it enough 
that whenever he was doing scenes with Italian actors, he would kind of get an idea, okay, I think it's my turn now. <laughs> right. Then they do it in post. Now, yeah. one thing that I, I wonder with you, Travis, and I think you're going to need to get over your reticence to read subtitles, and here's why. Okay. I think the reason that George prefers the native tongue when he's watching these movies isn't necessarily whether the lips are matched up or not. I think it's a lack of sensitivity to the nuance of uh, a language you don't speak, right? If you hear someone in English giving an over-the-top performance, you're going to be like, oh, God, nobody talks like that, Ugh. Right? right? But Or a wooden performance. Like you said, Troy, uh, Blood and Black Lace has a lot of acting like this, and it hurts to listen to a little bit. But if right. you don't so, speak Italian or Korean or German, your brain doesn't filter out the stuff that doesn't sound natural, and instead you can just focus on what the movie is doing, not what it's not doing. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. But I don't think my issue is that. Like, if I watch a movie that was clearly an Italian movie and the voices are dubbed. The delivery of those lines don't bother me as much as sometimes the visual acting. If you spoke Italian, it'd be worse. Maybe, <laughs> but I don't... The reading, it just takes... My problem with the reading isn't because I don't want to read. It's just I'm a visual person. I like to watch the performance. Right, Travis. I like to watch the background. I like to watch why. what's going on in this room, what's sitting on the table, why is it there? That's why I like to watch subtitles first, Right. Get the story and then just that's watch the idea, movie in which another I, language. I, I, yeah. I'm fine with that. I think we're we're getting into another thing that's um, important to understand about these films, but that is tough for a lot of, I think, a lot of American people in particular when they start watching these movies, is that they are very visual films, and they're very concerned with things like mood and atmosphere mm -hmm. and uh, really interesting camera work. And there's kind of a mentality in America that movies need to be read as if they're literature, uh, that the only movies that are any good are movies that have really good plots and really deep characterization. And, you know, that's that's what film is supposed to be all about. I'd say film is a much more visual medium, mm -hmm. and there is no real rule as to what a film should or should not be. Um, how we react to a film is very subjective, and you, you may not like a film that's a little light on the plot, let's say, um, but by the same token, if a film isn't really going for a particular deep, meaningful, you know, sociopolitical, you know, really a kind of layered critique kind of an approach, a very literate approach, and it's just going for something that's very visual, that's not a flaw. That's what it is going for, and it should be assessed on that level. But again, that may not be something that you're particularly in tune to, because I think, you know, culturally, we're really sort of trained to think that there's only one way to tell a story, and that's the American way. Um, we saw this when Bird with Crystal Plumage was released in 1970 in America, where it did very well, surprisingly, and it got some very good reviews, but there were some very snobby reviews that came out and basically said, oh, you know, this movie is, you know, the... the it, it cheats and it's it's not you know it's not logical and it's not following the kind of Hollywood approach. Um, well, there are other ways of telling stories and making films that aren't the Hollywood approach. So, mm. I think sometimes that comes down to what you're accustomed to, and that's understandable if you're used to twenty, thirty years of watching films that follow a certain approach and a certain way of telling things and doing things. And then all of a sudden you see something else that just totally throws that out the window and says, no, we're, we're going to do it differently. That can take getting used to. Mm -hmm. And I think like, like you watch a movie 
And this is why I think I know I don't have a problem with subtitles. It's just like Schindler's List. When you watch Schindler's List, you, you don't have to read what they're saying. You could totally block out those subtitles. You know what's going on there. Mm. You know what they're feeling like. I, the Passion. I could watch I have, The Passion. I haven't, ever, I haven't ever seen. Okay, Schindler's I know List. we're getting there. Yeah. But like <laughs> even even The Passion, when you watch a movie, it's all in Aramaic. You know the story, so you mm. don't really have to read. You know what they're doing visually. Right. So with with these movies, once I know them well enough, it won't bother me. Lips mm. don't bother me. My my wife it fl- flips it, her out. It, it doesn't her, bother yeah. me at all if they don't match up. I've seen. And she may never, <laughs> and that's fine. Right. You know, I'm sure she can live her entire life quite happily without being a Tario Argento <laughs> fan. There's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, it it is something that takes getting used to. Um, I sometimes forget that. Uh, you know, when I flash back and think about when I first started watching these movies when I was very young, um, it took me a while. Not even just the music, uh, the the um, you know the dubbing, but also the music is very yes. different. Yes. And the music takes getting used to as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, this movie has an extraordinary score by Ennio Morricone, which uh, you know uh, anybody who knows anything about film should know who Ennio Morricone is, one of the great composers. But it's a different kind of approach to scoring a movie versus a mm-hmm. American thriller. Um, it, it has that kind of creepy. Uh, sing-songy lullaby type of yeah. soundtrack <laughs> that is, you know, uh, again, um, that's either going to work for you or it doesn't. It works for me, but maybe some people might find that. Well, again, it, it might seem a little bit hokey at this point because other movies copied that. And right. so, you know, you're used to that now. That wasn't the case in 1970. Now, George, did did you hear me pop up on your shoulder when the score to this movie started? <laughs> With the first la 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 la, did you have me in your ear going, I told you Dirty Harry ripped off Italian movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just last week I said, oh, uh, you know, there's a, there, I tried to make it like, I didn't want to give it away that you were about to hear it. So I was like, oh yes, there's there's a couple of Jolly that have uh, very similar la 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 scores. I'm sure you'll hear them at in, some point. In more ways than one. Now, I, I, didn't, I didn't think um, of Dirty Harry, but you know what I thought of? And I I don't know if all of you guys have seen this. There's like a Netflix or not Netflix. Uh, it's a Amazon original. Um, Man in a High Castle. Mm-mm. You don't know it, Dan? Do you know? I'm it? aware Detroit? of what it is. I only watched Anybody? one episode though, so I didn't. Okay, so the the intro and that that is a very dark show, mm-hmm. right? It the for those of you that don't know, it's like it takes place in in an America where if Germany would have won World War Two. You know, and it's split <laughs> between Japan and Germany and blah, blah. It's a very dark show. Hmm. But it starts off the, the, like, the theme song is Edelweiss. And it's mm-hmm. sung by, like, a little girl. And it's just creepy. Yeah. Like, it's, like, kind of sing-songy, but creepy. Amityville Horror does the same thing. It's like, Yep. That's what that's what the that's what it reminded me of and right off the bat. Lalo Lalo Schifrin scored um, Amityville and Dirty Harry. Right, and what's funny with the Dirty Harry, my my issues I had with these movies, I had with Dirty Harry, and it it it, it makes sense now mm. because Dirty Harry has that same kind of acting where it's like I'm gonna throw my shoulder, I'm gonna throw everything into this line, and it's almost like purposely done. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost soap opera-ish, mm-hmm. but the acting's nowhere near as bad as as the soap opera. But it has that same thing. When you watch Telemundo, they do the same thing. You know, they they just over over react purposely. Guess, it's almost yeah. like an acting choice. It's a choice. Right. Well, and these are it, very 
these are very stylized films. Right, and I think right, the stylized. acting is, is consistent with that. Um, mm-hmm. You were mentioning Hammer before, and I put up a, a significant uh, you know objection to that <laughs> because I love those films. <laughs> yeah, but no, uh, I wasn't criti- the, I wasn't criticizing. The, I was just saying. Oh no, that's no, I, I understand. Yeah. There there is a theatricality that can come through because these were theater actors. Right. Um, Peter Cushing was a theater actor. Christopher Lee was not. Um, but what, where you see it the worst is when you had the occasional actor in those films who thought it was beneath them. Um, mm. <laughs> there were instances of actors who came into those films, uh, not Christopher Lee, not Peter Cushing, but some of the other actors who occasionally did them who thought, oh, this is just a piece of shit. I'm going to play it down. I'm not going to take it seriously. And it's very obvious when it happens because mm-hmm. you, you find somebody who's giving this kind of shouty, um, annoying, inappropriate performance. Whereas the best films, uh, I think you know the acting is perfectly in sync with the material and, and holds up very well. I'd say even rather realistic. Um, but again, things like this change. I've been watching a lot of silent movies lately, mm. um, and that's something you got to get used to too. You know, yep. Yep. if you're watching films from that are a hundred years old at this point. Um, talking about big acting, but of course they yep. didn't have the benefit of dialogue. They didn't have the benefit of people hearing their voices. So they had to really kind of put everything into it. And uh, some people just, but you know, it's the same thing. It's always driven me nuts when I talk to people who say, oh, I don't like black and white movies. And right. I don't like old movies because the acting was always so bad. No, bullshit. You have to <laughs> learn to adjust to them. If you want to, you know, it's not something that you have to do. You know, you 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 can't go through life without being able to appreciate Citizen Kane. All right, so right. <laughs> you, you have to you have to be able to put it into context if you want to understand them. Um, but I try to go by it, time frame. Like if if it's a '60s yeah. movie, I know what the performance is going to be like. If it's a '50s, '40s, like you know by the I've decade said, how it's going to be. I've said that before. Yeah. yeah. And then sometimes they throw you a curveball. Like I think of Halloween now after watching these. I think of Halloween and the performances in that, and it's it's a lot of that stuff is purposely done because that's the era, and that's what the mm. I see the reference now. So well, they are, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. And Halloween's a great example too of the movie that looks very cliched now. I remember watching that film with uh, with a girlfriend one time, and she said, "Oh." They always fall down in these movies. I said, right. this was the movie that got that started. <laughs> this right. is where the cliches were born. Uh, not to say there weren't examples before, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas, for example. But this is the where a lot of this stuff was born from. And don't think that um, you know John Carpenter, who made that film and, and did a remarkable job making that film for the money that he had, um, wasn't aware of the fact that there were things in it that weren't realistic. Mm-hmm. But he like he was very influenced by people like Dario Argeno. Dario Argeno is not only a good friend of his, he's also a, a director he admires. Um, he was referencing movies like Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Deep Red um, and was trying to do something rather similar, but with a very stripped down kind of a plot. Yeah. God, I... I and thanks, I, thanks to Dan, we, we know this now. I ruined Travis's <laughs> yeah. life when we went through the first, what, 20 minutes of um, Seven Bloodstained Orchids. <laughs> mm. Travis was just like, no, not no, looking, can't, can't see it, can't yeah, see it. Yeah, I was it. like Luke Skywalker. I'm like, this is impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It's the same I, I'm shirt. On bo- I'm on board now. <laughs> oh, Although, Dan, my thing still holds true, though. Like I, When I'm watching these movies, I realize the, the references, but my love of Halloween and whatever, uh, and all those slasher films in America, I said it before, is the branding. 
I really love the branded killer. I love uh, the visual branded mm. killer, where it's not like yeah. this generic. We know, you know how to brand shit. Person in the trench coat. <laughs> now you like you're looking at evil. You're seeing that face, that white face, and I. I kidded with Dan I'm like if 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 they did it in Italy if they did Halloween in Italy it would just be a plastic mime face instead well yeah but there's just something eerie about that that Kirk mask and what they well, did that with was it. very it's that was a very deliberate thing because you know I'm, I'm sure you've heard the story about how when they made the film that Carpenter sent Tommy Lee Wallace out to get masks mm-hmm. and one of the masks he got was a clown mask and um you know Thank God they didn't pick that. He picked the right yeah. mask, and and of course, I'm sure William Shatner was incensed when he became aware <laughs> of all the money that was being made off of his face without uh, being right. aware of it. Although they changed it, in fairness, so it, you know, fair enough. But yeah, it is an iconic thing, and of course, there he was creating basically the boogeyman, um, right? And that's mm. something that bugged a lot of people about that movie too, is the fact that, well, wait a minute, why is he doing this, and and uh, how does he survive this, and how is this possible? He likes. In in Carpenter's case, he very often likes to leave people with more questions than answers. A lot of his mm-hmm. movies end in a way that is very unsatisfying for some people, but I love it because mm-hmm. you don't get the answer. Everything isn't tidied up. I like not knowing whether McCready or Childs are infected at the end of the thing. Um, you know, I'm aware that those two guys are not going to live. <laughs> this is a bleak ending. Right. And, of course, the movie flopped terribly when it came out, although it's, it's a masterpiece. Um, but... I, I like endings like that that don't clarify everything. Uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage is funny because it's... it's Obviously, it was Argento's first movie as a director. Um, I think the little psycho-type scene at the end with the psychiatrist coming in, which Argento basically plays for laughs by having the inspector falling asleep in his chair while he's talking and everything, um, <laughs> just sort of pontificating about the psychology and everything. He doesn't really care about that. That's just right. concessions to the audience, and he didn't really do that in his later movies. See, mm. I looked at that as like a character choice for the inspector because it almost he clearly was out of his element. His element is mm-hmm. on the street yep. tracking a killer, and here yeah. he is on TV. That's why he passes yeah. it off. He's like, "Oh, well, how about uh, yeah, you talk to him because I don't want to talk to him about it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm yeah. saying." Yeah, and, and no, that, that was good. to me. I didn't look at it as a throw-in at it's all. Like it's like me good. talking about Jalen movies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> soon you'll be able to. I don't know about soon, uh, Troy. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to thank you. You articulated something that I feel like I'm experiencing now through this podcast. You said, uh, I, I even forget how you said it, but you said that, you know, American audiences want the story to be told like in an American way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I started this podcast with these two guys, my favorite movies, and I, my, my favorite movies were tragedies. And I told them, you know, straight up, I think episode one, like that's where my head's at. I like Road to Perdition. I right. like King Kong. Oh like, yes. I like, you know, I like these movies that resemble life because like Think life of the tragedies is a tragedy. you haven't seen yet. <laughs> right. But the more I watch these movies with Dan and Travis, and I think this happened during Dirty Harry, I realized this movie is not realistic at all. Mm-mm. But I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I'm getting into it, and that's something that I never could do before. I never. I felt like watching a movie that wasn't realistic was kind of like a waste of time. Right. But it's not like it's, you know, it's art, so it can be anything. Sure. It's funny, Troy. uh, If you ever get around to listening to any of our podcasts, uh, the RoboCop, George's first comment sums all that up. (laughs) 
He basically, well. <laughs> after <laughs> Dan's one of Dan's favorite movies, I love it for nostalgic reasons. And uh, and George's first question was, "Did you guys just make me watch the worst movie ever made on purpose?" Or I, and then... you know, it's funny. It's funny you should say that because my my all time favorite horror film is Rosemary's Baby, and mm. uh, it's I think it is as close to perfection as any movie I've ever seen. I don't think any movie's perfect, but I think that movie is as close. What Polanski did in that film is just amazing. Yes. And George will um, be seeing that eventually. Mm. And that's a movie, you know, I don't want to say too much about it, you haven't seen it, but I mean, you don't see anything, you know, it's it's mm. all, it's implied stuff and everything else. I remember showing it to uh, another girl that I was with at the time. I have, I have a knack of picking girls with bad cinema taste. <laughs> and <laughs> I had played this movie up to her. I said, oh, this is, you know, we'll watch this because, you know, this is such a great movie. And I'm sitting there watching it with her, and I'm just totally immersed. And it gets into the dream sequence, which to me is one of the greatest scenes ever made. And it's so creepy, and it's so wonderful. And she looks at me and says, this is the worst movie I've ever seen oh. in my oh. life. And I was, I was heartbroken. And I said, well, we can stop watching if you like, no, no, we might as well finish it up. But it was funny <laughs> because by the time you got into the last 45 minutes or so, it clicked. And she was like, oh, oh. And she oh, was yeah. into it the whole way. She loved the end. She said, oh, if only they would have cut out all that bullshit at the beginning. I said, no, you need all that buildup. You yep. need all the, the, you know, it starts off like a soap opera and it's, it's, everything is all sunny and you need Character that before you get the creep. Yeah. You need mm -hmm. the creepy stuff to come in gradually. But it was funny because, you know, it went from this is the worst movie I've ever seen to, okay, that was good. Maybe I didn't like the first half as much as you did. So, yeah, I mean, you know. It's it's funny, too, because people, it's very often what they're exposed to and when they're exposed to it. I was exposed to old movies, quote-unquote old movies, when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And so it was never an issue for me to watch movies that were in black and white. I have never had an issue watching old films and thinking, oh, this acting is so hokey. I, it doesn't bother me. You know, I can watch a, yeah. a film like Frankenstein from 1931, and yes, there are performances in that film that, that look awfully over the top today doesn't matter to me it works perfectly and uh I, I i do believe that it has a lot to do with this when you're exposed to it in particular i was lucky that i was a child when i started seeing these movies so to me it was always normal well one of my first crushes was fay ray and one of my favorite movies is king kong so i remember learning very early that overacting isn't always a bad thing mm. <laughs> <No>. um <laughs> the funny thing about how with what you were saying about the girlfriend my son my oldest son i started letting him watch some of these movies that we're doing and he watched Halloween with me. Now, mm -hmm. I've seen Halloween about 280 times. Like, it's my one of my favorite movies ever made. And he's 15, and when it was over, he basically said, uh, that was boring. He told me it was boring. <laughs> well, I and mean, I if you're like, used oh. to slasher movies that came afterwards where people were getting axes in the face and everything else, or, you know, but the pacing is very different in films then, too. Right. I think he's just was, used to TikTok. It, it, no, it was his, it was his first horror, like his first slasher film ever. Mm -hmm. And it to me, my reaction to him was, "Well, you guys want everything in two seconds, three yeah. seconds, like all these yeah. little." It's the generation, and I said, "You know, there's a thing called suspense, and you guys don't know it." Because he he was bored with Alien too. When we watched Alien, he was bored with that. He he just wanted it's to get slow. to the Alien. And I'm right, like, oh. it's slow. It takes a long time to get to the uh you know the money shot <laughs> when mm -hmm. john hurt gets the you know the alien comes through his chest right um and that's something you know you 
you either get used to it when you're young or you kind of gradually get used to it when you're older if you're open to it. And some people are open to it and will. And some people, no, no, I don't like the way movies used to be because they were slow and they were boring and they were too talky and the acting was bad and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, and I then mean, you stop dating them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it can be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, my wife is George's sister, so uh, <laughs> she she has the same problem that he has where she's never seen anything. So I'm always showing her things for the first time and yeah. it's like she either enjoys it for what it is or I got to explain to her why she likes it. <laughs> I'm like, you'll like it after three times of seeing it or this is why it's awesome and this is why you don't get it. Can I tell you guys that the uh, Silence of the Lambs like almost ended my marriage the other night? <laughs> really? <I'm, laughs> Go seriously? On. Well, th- not almost. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we we were going to get through it either way, but I, I <laughs> wanted to show this think. movie to my wife because my wife has never seen it, right? And I, I think it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I had just seen it you know, for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So I want to show it to her. And she sits down on the couch with like her phone and her notebook. And she's like <laughs> doing like not to take notes about the movie. Right. Like she's like to work or she's whatever. doing her schedule for the week right. and like putting together a grocery list. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, we're not. We're not going to watch this movie like that. And yeah, she was like, what? Funny. And and and, I, and she was like arguing with me like. You know, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. I can watch a movie however I want. And I was like, no, you're going to give this movie your full attention or you're not going to watch it. Watch right. it or don't. She got mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> do you see what we created, Dan? We did it. We showed him one of the greatest movies ever made and now it's ending his marriage now. <laughs> well, it's tough. You know, it's tough uh, when people, and that is not to sound like too much of an old fart, um, but it's true. It's a very different experience now for a variety of different reasons. A lot of it is to do with the phone. We have the phone at our hand all the time and it's easy to be distracted. And if you, you know, it's one thing if you're revisiting a movie you've seen 25 right. times and you know you're you're sort of checking in and out that's fine if you're watching it for the first time it's you know kind of a good idea if you really want to give it its due you want to pay attention to it um but you know uh, there there are so many different reasons for that and unfortunately very often a, a lot of people are just uh, they don't really have the opportunity of really immersing themselves in a movie for that reason yes and i was a i was a victim of that or a perpetrator of that I've actually seen a decent amount of movies, but I haven't actually watched, watched them. them. Right? They were always on in the background while I was doing something else. You know, I never really was a movie watcher. Mm-hmm. And tr- also, I want to I want to just mention, like, in her defense, she was actually kind of like stressed out about watching this movie. She's right. not used to. She doesn't like gore. She's not used to this, like, the stress mm-hmm. of a of a thriller. And so she felt like she might need to distract herself right. during this movie. No, we so, love we love her, so we yeah. get it. We get so it. So she wasn't she wasn't really there's disrespecting another, it as much as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> there's another component to this too, and it's something that I've often said about Citizen Kane, and I don't know if everybody's seen that or not. Um, I can guarantee nope. you, George has not seen nope. Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can anybody sit down to watch a movie being told this is the greatest movie ever made right. and not be disappointed? Right, it's mm-hmm. impossible. So that's where sometimes when you when you tell people ahead of time, oh, this is you you got to watch this is the great. Don't do that to them <laughs> because mm-hmm. you're setting mm-hmm. them up for disappointment. You might be better off just saying, you know what, yeah, it's pretty good. I'd be curious, you know, watch it and tell me what you think. Yeah, you know, that kind of approach as opposed to saying you, you are about to watch the greatest movie <laughs> the ever perfect. made. Yeah, 
A lot of pressure on that. One thing we love about, at least I love about doing this podcast, because George has to watch what we tell him, so we don't have to sell it to him. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to sell it to me. That's right. I mean, a few weeks ago, he watched uh, First Blood. Yes. And he didn't know it was a Rambo movie. We didn't tell him. (laughs) No. We found out. Yes, he did. Pretty quickly, yeah. It's on him. It's on us. Actually, <laughs> one movie that ad- did actually deliver, uh, one of my friends told me, like, the best movie ever made of all time is American History X. Mm. And I was like, okay, I got to watch that movie, right? That actually delivered. I was movie. like, hot damn, that yeah. was a very good movie. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it, I, I like keeping a secret, like, with American Werewolf in London. You did not expect that at all. No. It was, uh, it, you know, he has seen Shaun of the Dead, so he does, he is aware of the comedy Rom-com, horror, drum. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the drum horror funny, mm-hmm. and he was expecting just a werewolf movie, and was, and he, I mean, we had watched Psycho, like, right, a he couple thought it was a black ago. and white, he, you know, yeah, <laughs> and he was blown away by the fact that it was funny, it was edgy, it was new, yep, and here's a mm-hmm. movie from 1981-ish, and, and it's, it's new, and I, I, I love. That's why I love doing this. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. There's, there's movies that even I haven't seen in 25 years, and then right. I get to watch it in this context, and it makes me watch it. Like yeah. you said with me, yeah. like you have to watch it. And I, and sometimes it's just background noise to me. But when I actually watch the movie, I catch things I didn't see, yep. or I watch it from yeah. a different perspective. Yeah, I've gone into films knowing they had great reputations. In some cases, they deliver. I mean. Um, the Godfather to me is is a movie I can watch over and over again, and I'm totally immersed in that. But I can also see that being a movie that would bore the hell out of you, if you're right. not really invested in it because it's a long film. There's a lot of talking. There's not a lot of action. Um, you know, uh, not last year, the year before, Scorsese did a film called The Irishman, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Loved it, and I talked to some people who were like, "Oh, it was so yeah, boring." They <laughs> like what yeah. but yeah. you know a lot of the stuff that people hated in that film I loved the whole last act of the film dealing with De Niro in his old age and so forth I thought that made the movie mm. that to me was amazing material was in, vitally important some people were like oh that's so boring so you never know I mean y- yeah, you can you go know. into a movie uh, I've, I've you know I watched uh, Gone with the Wind and I thought eh I don't yeah. you know it's not for me. I understand mm. why it's important. I appreciate how well made it is, but I didn't care about it. I, I right. wasn't interested at all. But yeah, The Godfather, I can certainly, you know, again and again and again, uh, many, most Scorsese films, you know, for me are just absolutely amazing. I, I love them. Um, but, you know, you never know until you try. And that's that's the key thing, I guess. Give it its due. Give it a fair trial, I guess, so to speak. And then, you know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, I, I think the key is just to be able to articulate why you don't like it or why you do like it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the fact that someone you even say Godfather is boring because there's no action. Like, I, if there was no dialogue in that movie and they were just looking at each other, I'd be like, yeah. Oh, I, I love it. I mean, there's just <laughs> absolutely look at that look. That just cast. Did. Look at that look. <laughs> and that's you know that's that's Al Pacino before yep. he became. I mean, I love Al Pacino, don't get me wrong, and I mentioned the, yeah. the Irishman, I thought he was brilliant in that, best performance he gave in many years, um, but he turned into a caricature after a certain point, I mean, as much mm-hmm. as I love him, you know, we, we're accustomed to him just shouting for no reason, and right. but he doesn't do that in The Godfather or Godfather, I mean, most of his, none of his 70s movies, he really doesn't do that. It's the subtle so, Pacino, I, I enjoy yeah, the subtle Yeah, very Pacino. subtle, mm. I do too, which The Irishman was a great 
movie in the sense that that gave him moments of subtlety and also moments of the explosiveness we expect. <laughs> right. So that works. Um, so, yeah, to me, that's, you know, there's nothing boring in that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, depending on your attitude, especially if you think movies need to be really fast and, and the cutting needs to be really fast, oh, that's going to be a tough sell. <laughs> I do that stuff with, uh, when I think when we watched Young Frankenstein, I was like, okay, yeah, watch Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. Watch him go from one to 11 yeah. in a matter of <laughs> seconds. Yeah. yeah. And then right back to one again. Yep. And you love every bit of it. Every single thing he just said, whether he's at one or 11, was perfect. And yeah. he does that no. almost, even when, like, Blazing Saddles, like, his delivery of lines. He's brilliant. It's, mm-hmm. like, ridiculous. Yeah. And you don't no, get that anymore. He was you don't get that anymore. No. No. I mean, I enjoy um, uh, Will Ferrell. I enjoy him. I actually do find him rather funny, especially when he's working with John C. Riley. Mm. Um, which mm. John C. Riley's one of those guys who goes back and forth. I mean, he's worked with Polanski and Scorsese, and then he shows up in really goofy you know, comedies. Yep. So God bless him. I love him for that. Um, but there's nobody who's quite on that tier of Gene Wilder and what he did. Oh, uh, he, God, was, no. he was amazing. Well, and so were you, Troy. Thank you for coming on today giving us insight into Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but also just helping me to convince George and Travis that the Italian genre cinema is a worthy pursuit. And hopefully we made George love the movie a little bit more than he thought he did at the beginning of this thing. So before you head out of here, why don't you tell us about what you got going on, uh, what you got out, and for our listeners to check out. Uh, well, I, it's always awkward for me to talk about myself. Um uh, well, as far as books go, you know, most of my books really are focused on uh, not just Italian, but also Spanish uh, genre cinema. So um, my first book was The Haunted World of Mario Bava, which is obviously about Mario Bava and his films. Um, I've also written books on John Carpenter. There's Assault on the uh, System, the non- nonconformist cinema of John Carpenter. Dario Argento, I did a book called Murder by Design, the Unsane Cinema of Dario Argento. Uh, Lucio Fulci, I did Splintered Visions, uh, Lucio Fulci and his films. And uh, a trilogy of books about the giallo, uh, appropriate for what we were talking about on this show. Uh, They're called So Deadly, So Perverse, and uh, the first two volumes cover all the giallo films made in Italy between 1963 and 2013. Um, When I say all the films... I'm well aware that there are people who say, he left this movie out and he left that movie out. Write your own goddamn book. (laughs) I put put in all the films that I think qualified, and uh, I had some some good uh, Italian cinema scholar friends who backed me up on that. So (laughs) I think it is pretty comprehensive. But the third volume is uh, devoted to movies in the Jallo style made outside of Italy, uh, and that includes Halloween and Friday the 13th, uh, amongst many, many other films from uh, India and uh, Asia and, and various other places, Greece, uh, Turkey, you know, so it's it's a pretty comprehensive uh, world tour, but not meant to have every single movie in that style, you know, from around the world. That would be impossible. Mm. Um, so that's in an audio commentary wise. Um, yes, I did Bird with the Crystal Plumage for Arrow Films. I've also done a number of other Argento tracks, uh, including Phantom of the Opera, Sleepless, um, Suspiria, um, Opera, and uh, Phenomena, and The Card Player. And I'm going to be recording at least one more this year on one of his films. Can't say which one yet. Yay. And 
There's also <laughs> numerous Lucio Fulci tracks and Paul Nashi tracks, but even things like, um, you know, I Walk Alone, which is a uh, Burt Lancaster film noir movie from the 40s. So a little bit of everything, uh, over 100 tracks out there. If you want to check any of them out, uh, certainly, um, hopefully you won't find them boring. Now, uh, Troy, we can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for years, but uh, I, I think I've made at least... Uh, one more fan tonight. I'm still working on George. He's a hard sell. No, uh, <laughs> no, nah, nah, nah. But uh, <laughs> you, you've written a lot of freaking books about these movies. I don't know if you consider yourself an expert, but you're definitely a resource for our listeners. For American film watchers who know their Halloweens and their Jasons, but they want to dip their toe in and they're tired of me talking about Argento all the time. Are there two or three... Italian giallos or Spanish giallos that you would suggest to maybe uh, try to find on streaming for a new watcher who just wants to know what the hell we're doing making them talk about these movies? Well, um, when it comes to gialli, I would say Blood and Black Lace is certainly, again, it is a um, it is a template. It's a very important film. Um, you know, a very brutal movie for its time. I still think a movie that holds up in terms of its brutality is very vicious very physical in his murder sequences, but beautifully shot. So it's a very creepy and uncomfortable kind of a feeling that you get watching that film. Um, you know, some people will say, oh, it just looks like red lipstick. It, it really wasn't meant to look like blood and gore. It was, it, it's a more stylized kind of a thing. So that's not uh, a flaw. That's just, you know, a stylistic thing. Um, blood and Black Lace, certainly. Lucio Fulci did a film called Don't Torture a Duckling that I can't recommend highly enough. I, I just think that's an amazing movie. Um, really, really powerful movie that's got a couple of scenes in it that are just, you know, uh, classic Fulci. Um, Deep Red by Argento is Argento's masterpiece. I think one of the, you know, well, it is my favorite Jallo, um, and certainly a movie I'd highly recommend. Uh, non non uh, Argento, Bava, Fulci, I'd recommend movies like uh, What Have They Done to Solange by Massimo D'Alemano um, or Black Belly of the Tarantula by Paolo Cavara or uh, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward by Sergio Martino. That's one of the things about these movies, too. They always have very convoluted and eye-catching titles, and uh, I love them. You mean you don't think your vice is a locked room and only I have the key fits on an American marquee? Ah, uh, you know that would that would get me into a theater, though. I'll tell you what, mm. I I want to see that movie. Oh my gosh, uh, that's a graphic designer's nightmare. When you were <laughs> title yes. like that, when you were talking, Troy, about the camera work, I kept thinking about Sister of Ursula, and how the first time mm-hmm. I watched it, I thought, my God, these locations, this camera work. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's not uh, a highlight. It it's got some stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it does. It's got some great it locations. Does. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's got some stuff. <laughs> it's got some stuff. It's no Giallo of Venezia, but what is? Well, what yeah, is? that did a commentary for that one too. Oh yes, she did. Uh, yeah, that's one of your good. I like that one a lot, actually. Uh, yeah, that's on uh, <laughs> the other podcast we're gonna do with George, uh, the corruption of George. That's coming later. <laughs> good luck. Yeah. No. <laughs> Well, Troy. Meg will not be sitting down with that what, one. What have they done to George Warner? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so good. Uh, no, Solange was one of my favorites, too. Oh, yeah. I forgot I made you oh, watch yeah. I like Solange a lot. You're going to love Don't Torture, Torture a Duckling, too. That, uh, it's going to hit some notes for you that you don't expect, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it'll work. Travis, I don't know. Yeah, the, 
I'm not. There is a particular scene in that film that nobody ever forgets, and uh, it it lingers with you. And it's a very it's a very intelligent movie too. It's actually very um, Fulci, apart from all the blood and gore, was really very interested in a lot of sort of socio political uh, commentary. So. There's some stuff in that movie to chew on. There's there's some interesting kinds of uh, uh, social commentary that, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's a very layered movie. Very good. Well, Troy, thank you so much, man. If we can ever do anything for you, uh, let us know. We're always around. I will call in a favor if need be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Troy. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Hey, Troy, anytime Thanks, Troy. you want to talk about movies. Oh, yeah. If you ever want me on again, just let me know. <laughs> I mean, a uh, masculine <laughs> reaction of happiness. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> uh, way to send Troy off. Hey, yeah, you know, good. I do what I can. I'm here to entertain. <laughs> thank you so much, Troy. All right, thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Thank you both. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, go thank yourself, George. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to no, make a t-shirt that just says, yee, <laughs> <laughs> and then a dash, Dan. <laughs> yee. <laughs> uh, that was good. All right. Thanks again to Troy Howarth for joining us for the bird with the crystal plumage. But I don't think that we got all the way to the core of why George needs to like this movie. Going back to the bird with the the one with the crystal plumage, um, not the other one, you know. The bird, the the plumage was really underwhelming. To be quite honest, I think it's intended to be a bit of a red herring from the beginning. You know, just it's a. It didn't look like a herring. It was like more like a peacock. <sighs> I'm just kidding. <sighs> Exasperation. <laughs> well, I think I. Get your mic uh, closer. Oh, I did not like it when I first saw it either. So I, I I'm glad we did this because <laughs> listening to him talk about it doesn't make me like it anymore. But at least it makes me understand why I should like it. Well, it's that thing so. where if you saw Deep Red first and you hadn't seen any other slasher movies in a long time, you hadn't seen Jolly, and you were just, hey, I like Deep Red. What do I watch next? This is really the answer. Because it takes you back a bit. You can see, if you compare it to Deep Red, you can see where in his formula he's improved. You know, where is Mm. Deep Red a tighter product than Bird? But you can also see that a lot of those ideas were already manifest in his first movie. And some of them have a harder edge than they end up having in Deep Red. Some of the violence in this is a bit more personal, a bit more brutal. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. not as gory as Deep Red, but it's got... Just like a certain malice to it that I think Deep Red goes for, but never really achieves at the same level. Hmm. Did you catch Gotta like the Red. the Joker feeling, uh, Joker from Dark Knight with the knives at the beginning in that tray? Yeah, that that like full but... frame visual of knives on a on a drawer, just very much reminds me of that shot in Jail in the Dark Knight where they're scrolling across his knives like. Mm. Yeesh. And and the end. I, I mean, totally forgot about that. You got kind of a Joker feel at the end as well. Uh, you know, uncontrollable laughter. Yep. I think what we'll probably do here, guys, 
and guys being you two, but also like listeners. I think we'll get to a certain point in this podcast and I'm going to warn you from there on, if you don't want to spoil it, then just skip to the next episode because we got to talk about the ending, but we have to do so in a way that protects you, the listener, from spoiling it because this is a pretty good movie with a pretty substantial proto Shyamalanian twisty twist. So we will not go there yet, but we will at some point. So one thing I did want to talk about, one of the things that makes this movie important, not so much its experience, although I think it's a hell of a flick. It's probably my second or third favorite Argento. But the substance of this movie goes on to inspire every Jalo that follows it, pretty much. That's why we've talked about it in the Friday episodes and the Halloween episodes. Mm-hmm. There are pre-bird Jolly and there are post-bird Jolly. And when I say post-bird, yep. I mean after 1970. <laughs> most of your Jalos have a citizen detective who's just kind of trying to solve the crime before the police for very, you know, whatever, uh, you know, MacGuffin reason, right? I was watching mm-hmm. I Know What You Did Last Summer mm. today, which I had never seen. Meh. Oh. That's my... It, it Meh. It's all right. Meh. Eh. Well, they were trying to cash in on something. Right. But uh, it's a fine film. But the whole time, I just, I'm just i looking at this thing like, oh, of course you can't call the police because of plot reasons. Like, yeah, that, mm-hmm. it's the same trick we've been using for you know 30 years at that point. So it's fun to see that it's stuck around. Uh, and it's been in other things. I mean, obviously, Psycho, she couldn't have called the police for help. So anyway, in the bird... Uh, thing the citizen policeman becomes a thing but yeah that scene yeah that scene with the uh <laughs> the lady that gets killed after she walks through the park you're going to see if you keep watching these movies a pretty lady alone in a park at dusk i mean that's on your bingo card just mm-hmm. you know martino does it everybody does. you gotta have a lady in tall hedges nearing dark on her way home alone it's just you put it on your list just like you've got to have your citizen detective. Uh, you've got to have the incompetent police force, for the most part, or the detached police force. Because mm-hmm. police are boring. And and he's right. If you ever want your homework, okay, George, Travis, homework for you, uh, you're going to think this sounds like an interesting movie. It's called I Ragazzi del Massacro. All right, did you get that? Mm-hmm. Uh, American title? Naked violence. <laughs> nice. It is essentially <laughs> law and order with a couple of mm-hmm. boobs in it. And it is <laughs> so boring. <laughs> like, I actually, I really enjoyed the movie. It has a lot of actors I like in it. It's got a great director, sort of. I mean, a very well-known director, uh, Fernando de Leo, who did a lot of crime movies. But it's a law and order episode down even to the dun-dun between scenes it's got its mm-hmm. own little like mm. that it does between <laughs> scenes it's bizarre and it goes it goes places that you would never expect it's very strange but uh the first hour or so is just like paint drying on a on a white wall like it is just a snooze fest because it is a police procedural to the bone visually stimulating and the last act gets copied in a movie that we're about to watch here in the next probably season or so 
uh, ripped off wholesale. So I'm excited to show it to you for real after we've watched the good movie that I can't tell you what it is. Very good. Oddly enough, that same good movie that I can't tell you what it is uh, steals a scene from Bird with the Crystal Plumage, like wholesale too. Hmm. Yeah. Very fun. Cool. Can't wait to show you. This is this is one you might have actually heard of, but I know, Travis, you've seen it, so I can't tell you because it would spoil it. Mm. Much like my, hey, you're going to see an Italian movie someday that has this la-la-la-la-la score from Dirty Harry. Oh, wait, it's <laughs> the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Will you, Ernest P. Worrell? I crack myself up. Actually, my kid was watching Ernest Scared Stupid earlier, so. Oh, I gosh. might be. Let me ask Vern. <laughs> Vern? It rubs off on you. Oh, man. Air breaks. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you caught it, Dan, but like today, before we started recording, when Travis came in, he actually took the parakeet and put it in the bedroom <laughs> like we normally do. And he was like, I'm put, I, I was putting the bird, bird, the bird away. Oh, that's good. <laughs> like, and it, like, it's just funny. We were watching <laughs> the bird. He was taking care of the bird. Just taking care of the bird, putting yeah. it away. How crystal was its plumage, though? Uh, scale of one to ten like a pe- like a peacock oh this actually my parakeet probably has closer plumage to crystal than that gray bird in this movie <laughs> <laughs> but it's fine no you know one of my favorite things about these kind of lower budget italian movies they play fast and loose with the plot and they play fast and loose with kind of uh, time and space and Sometimes, like Troy said, they make emotional sense. They don't make logical sense. Uh, there's one Argento in particular I'm thinking of that I've shown it to some people, and it's their favorite movie from the first moment. And other people are asleep halfway through and mad at me for showing it to them because it is so narratively detached from what you expect as an American viewer. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite things that these uh, genre films from the 70s do is they play really uh, fast and loose with animal species to where you might have a bird with a crystal plumage and you get gray, right? You might have a movie called uh, The Parrot and it might be a a parakeet, right? There's not a lot of like Mm -hmm. attention to scientific or real detail because budget (laughs) defines what you can get. I bring this up because there's... Like a a chimpanzee obsessed with blades? (laughs) Right. <laughs> I wanted to tell Troy that you guys had seen Phenomena, but I don't think he would have believed me. Why did you show mm. that to him first? Uh, a lot of reasons, <laughs> but at the same time, why did I show you that first? Sometimes you just got to establish uh, expectations, right? Uh, I like Phenomena, but well, that was, you, that was a there was a good reason, right? I I thought of that, and I thought of Friday Thirteenth Part Six almost immediately on the opening of. Uh, blood and black lace with the swinging oh, sign yes and, and the, the storm yep um. i was like oh this is so part six <laughs> so the the best animal example that i'm going to tell you guys about there's that movie uh that troy mentioned called black belly of the tarantula mm. and there's all this talk of like the tarantula hawk wasp right which okay. if you've ever seen a tar- tarantula hawk wasp that's a bad motherfucker like that thing yeah. don't play mm-hmm. Uh, That's a BMF. But for whatever reason, for budgetary reasons, they couldn't get actual footage of a tarantula (laughs) hawk. And so instead, they have insert footage of a honeybee attacking a small spider. (laughs) 
and what? it's that's hysterical so to be like oh that's that's obviously a honeybee <laughs> like that is not a tarantula hawk wasp that is that's a that's a, that's a buzzy bee. Why didn't they just get a wasp? Any that's wasp, terrible. just a paper wasp, right? Just any wasp, any wasp. But it's a it's a <laughs> just a white Anglo-Saxon bee. Protestant even, yeah, would do. Even a woman, <laughs> to be fair, as a bee. <laughs> to be fair, in about twenty years, people are gonna be like, "Oh, remember bees?" Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and then you say, "Well, remember thank you." <laughs> oh man. Uh, but yeah, don't watch Sister Versla till it's. The we've seen all the other jalos. That one's not good, but it is really trashy mm. and fun. So uh, let's take so bird. Let's take stock a little bit. You've heard now from Troy. You've heard me singing its praises for months. I don't know if I would have raised your expectations by bringing it up because I never said it was great, but it is very much important. Do you now, having heard all of our kind of praise for this movie and where it fits, mm-hmm. do you want to watch it again? Is it a movie that you're interested in? I already have. I watched it twice. I know. But would you watch it a third time? Travis, do you want to watch it again? Are you like, man, maybe if I go back... Are you talking about plumage? Plumage. Um, Probably not for me. But I might watch it one more time uh, based on what we talked about. But I don't expect different results. I might, I might watch it one more time just because you said that there was things that I had missed in the first the first part. So I might watch it one more time. If you watch the first scene, at least the scene in the art gallery, the earliest action scene, if you watch it now with the you know, the knowledge uh, that you have from the second and third acts of the movie, you can at least fact check it to see that indeed they do not cheat and a keen-eyed observer could have potentially picked what was to come. I did realize uh, the, the kill... The second, the second go around, the kill of the, I guess it would be the second kill, the see-through top going to bed chick. Yeah. When she puts her cigarette down and then she looks up at the door and the killer's there, around the killer's head is kind of, you can kind of see... So we're entering spoiler territory then. Are you guys ready to do this? Should I give our disclaimer? Hey, everybody. Well, I think we are. I think I already spoiled it. So I'm going to bleep that. Dan and Post spoil it. Yeah. So I did kind of notice that. Hey, everybody. We're going to go ahead and just spoil uh, from here on out. So if you haven't watched the movie yet, it is really good. Don't listen to these chuckleheads. Go check it out. Uh, <laughs> Change the whole world of cinema, uh, even though you know it's it's a small Italian movie from 1970. You don't get Michael Myers without this movie. Just saying. Uh, very important to have this movie in between. Anyway. From here on out, we're going to spoil the ending. And, of course, the ending is that she was dead the whole time. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, is that the next scene in Naked Violence? Is that what you just did? Oh, wait. Did you just reveal? Oh, my gosh. You didn't even hear what he just said? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so, the big twist, Mrs. Ranieri was trying to kill her husband in the opening scene not the other way around but you you oh. you sexist people assume that every man is trying to kill every woman but i mean that's what we all See, assumed right I th- dude with a knife I and a trench coat was dead the whole time <laughs> <laughs> wow travis really wasn't that, listening damn <laughs> yeah he really wasn't i listening. thought that was the twist oh my god sam was dead the whole time okay are his cans working i can't tell 
so he was looking at his phone. My can. So the thing. You leave my cans out of this. The thing is, uh, they do a good job in a lot of scenes. If you're paying attention, you can see some hair uh, kind of haloed around certain times. The mm-hmm. build of the killer is never substantial. They do a good job of keeping. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the some of the prime suspects are also pretty slim, but you know they don't cheat. You're not going to see in certain scenes like, oh, hey, it's it's a six foot eight guy. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. oversight. You know, it's they keep it consistent. There really isn't a lot of cheating in this movie. The one thing that I do want to do, and I never have taken the time to do it. They mention in the final psychiatric breakdown. <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Psychiatric breakdown. Come on. <laughs> they mention in that final scene that the husband, by being exposed to his wife, also somehow became homicidal. Mm-hmm. And I don't mm-hmm. think you need that. I don't know why that's there because you can blame most of the killings on her and the rest of the killings on him protecting her. So it kind of makes me want to go back and scorecard it and see how many times she was the killer and how many times he was the killer and see if there's some that maybe I could attribute to either one to kind of up his kill count a little bit. It seemed like an out of place, Mm. unnecessary item in a pretty tight little scene to be like, oh yeah. And also he's, he's fucking crazy. I'm like, ah, does he have to be? Well, I thought he was just covering for her. One of my big problems, man. Like, well, it was obviously him who tried to kill Sam on the street in front of the old lady. Yes. Because it wasn't her. She was right. in the hospital at the right. time. So it had to be him. Um, That was one of the things that, you know, they, it was a, at first they point to Carlo, right? And they kind of keep thought. coming back to Carlo. He's always, right. he's your friend. He's the guy you expect to be the twist ending. And they build him in that way where he's at the beginning, he's a red herring, and then he's good again. But then you're like, oh, it's been him this whole time. Yeah, so you think it's you think it's him towards the end, and then then it's the husband, Mr. Ranieri or whatever their name is. Then it's then it's the husband. He confesses to all the killings, and then he dies. And then you realize that Sam's girlfriend left with Carlo. Yep. And I'm like, but hold on. Why? Like, they're still teasing Carlo, even though this other guy confessed to it. Why would this other guy confess to it? There's got to be something else going on here. Right. Why did this guy confess? Okay, all right. Just So just keep watching. You keep watching, and then they tease Carlo again in the room. He's holding the knife, but, you know, you don't know that until a second or two later that he's got a knife in the back of his neck, right? So they tease him again then, and he's dead, and then they reveal who the... So what I'm saying is, what I'm thinking is, you don't even need the husband. You, I think right. the movie would have been better just leave the husband's confession and all that shit out, right? And the only thing that he did was try to cover for his wife trying to kill Sam on the street. That's the only thing that he should have done. But you have to take into account audience expectations, right? They expect the twist to be another male. So they build it up to be a twist that never delivers. And then you twist on the twist. It's playing with the expectations of an Italian audience in 1970, where they assume another male will be the killer. When we got to that point, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if it was the blonde? The girlfriend? Sam's girlfriend. 
Mm. If they somehow twist that if they just tweak the story enough to where she could have been the killer when she got taken. But then once they finally show her tied up underneath the couch, then I knew that wasn't going to happen. But right. they kind of made it so it might have been her just because she fled the scene as well. Maybe the two girls are working together, you know, something like that. Well, she's also like a prime victim. So if you think the killer's Carlo, Carlo takes her and you're like, oh, he's going to kill her. Because if Carlo's the guy, she's a prime victim for right. this killer. A female, but it, it, young, Because blonde, Sam whatever. witnessed the attempted murder, uh, making the blonde working with the redhead would have been cool too. And not the husband. The husband just kind of tried to cover for her at the end. He knew about it. Right. And confessing would have taken them off her trail. Right. But the two girls working together, that probably would have been cool too. Because she's yeah, kind of surveilling totally, Sam. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah. It would have been a totally, totally different movie, but yeah. One of the things that makes these jollies so interesting and fun for me is you get to play along the whole time. So many modern movies, American movies, especially like the Sherlock Holmes movie that came out 10 years ago with... Uh, Iron Man, Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. There is a mystery, like but they don't give you enough to try to play along in any legitimate way. You're just kind of along for the roller coaster ride. And then yeah. in one scene, they're just like, you're too stupid to figure this out. So let me tell you all the stuff that you would have seen if we showed right. it to you, but we didn't because we hate you, audience. And now <laughs> you see how smart I am and I figured it out. This movie yeah. and a lot of these jolly, the ones that play it straight, if you're paying attention and if you're playing the game, you're going to fall for the wrong one because they've manipulated you in a a correct way. But it's satisfying because you're playing the game until they eliminate your favorite character. And then you're like, oh, my suspect's gone. On to the next one, right? It's a game of Clue. uh, Right, right. And it's so much fun if you let it be fun. And that's why I kept referring to, like, I I was feeling more the 80s type whodunit feeling than the more modern ones. Like, I even had a, a quick feeling of who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. You know, the, you know, you didn't really know who framed him and they kept kind of giving you these different characters and aspects. And is it this person? Is Mm -hmm. it this person? They made you think at one point it was Jessica Rabbit, like all these different things. It was totally film noir. I wouldn't say giallo, but it was pretty now after watching plumage, I'm sure there was some reference and or homage to that with, with Roger Rabbit. And Jessica Rabbit looking the way she does with the flowing red hair. There's mm-hmm. certainly some shared so, heritage, if nothing else, you know? Yeah. So I think the 80s were paying attention a lot more than now. So. Definitely. Although Knives Out is pretty good. Knives Out is so. good, but it still doesn't give you enough to go on. Like, you're not going right. to guess the ending of Knives Out unless you've seen it before. Part of that is because of the perspective of the storyteller. Like, the narrative itself is so confined Versus this one where you're kind of third person over the shoulder of Sam the whole time so you can see more than he sees. Whereas I felt mm-hmm. like Knives Out, it's very much first person, like you're experiencing it along with your main character, which is fine. It's a different style. It's not my favorite, but it was certainly better than Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> right. I hate that movie. Well, see, that's interesting because I I didn't mind Sherlock Holmes. And I even like the, the series, the Sherlock Holmes series with... Uh, uh, Cumberbatch, Bene- yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, I think maybe the Cumberbatch one might give you more to go on. I liked Sherlock Holmes, but I hated Signs for that reason. Okay, like 
signs, you know, the end came together. And I think I've talked about this before, but the end comes together. And yes, they took things in the earlier in the movie that you saw and kind of pieced them together to help Mel Gibson defeat the aliens. But they're not things that you should have seen. Right. You know, I like movies that give you the things that you should have seen, but you didn't. I like that. Mm-hmm. But this may, movie makes me appreciate Clue a lot more now. I'm going to watch yeah. it on a totally different level because they do all that stuff. And it's a comedy, mm-hmm. but it's it's the whodunit part of it is. I'm going to have to see Clue. Yes, you will. Yeah, You, you definitely will. I, I, I recommend it. Tell me your thoughts when you see the painting. That's an odd painting. I forgot to bring up the painter. Oh my gosh, you mean my college he roommate? Uh. He wasn't, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't in my notes. I, I think it was one of those things where I didn't take notes because I just couldn't look away because it was like a car wreck. Yeah. Like no, so it's terrible. Insane. It's insanity. <laughs> um, It's funny. <laughs> like <laughs> he puts the ladder out the window and like Sam climbs up it. And then, you know, they don't take the ladder in. So like, Anyone can Anyone. come in. Also, <laughs> like Dirty Harry. Yeah, when he was when he was going up the ladder, I said, "If that apartment isn't long enough to house that ladder, I'm gonna freak the fuck out." Like, because it was a long ass ladder. I was waiting for Hot Mary and her boobs to come out. Oh, Hot Mary! <laughs> hot Mary! <laughs> oh, oh man! But anyway, so there. Um, yeah. So the painting, it, it, it was obviously painted by someone who was deranged. When I mm-hmm. first saw it, I was like, "This person's not right in the head." I thought the painter was the it, was the killer, and the you know, and the, maybe the the painter went into the shop to buy their own painting so that nobody else would. So they why isn't put it together. the painter the killer? Do we know who the painter is? Maybe the woman painted that. She, she does work in an art art gallery, right? Maybe that's her painting. But you meet the painter. He's a crazy guy. He eats cats. Do we though? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, no, we totally. Is, it, I don't is know. this a? Is it? We don't even know if it's Jason moment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the reason it. I wanted to bring it up when I first saw this movie, that was one thing to me that just screamed like no budget. Like you got these great scenes because they're in you know mm. Turin, it, Italy, and it's beautiful. And then you see this painting, you're like, oh, you had ten dollars to make a painting. But mm, I'm not an yeah. art guy, and as I've told you on this show before, I really kind of wish I was, uh, because it informs so much of what we watch. And if you don't know the stuff, you know, like the Francis Bacon thing, I didn't know Mm -hmm. anything he'd ever done except for the Batman thing. And now it's like, Oh, now I've looked him up. I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. Total set design. Wow. His paintings. Well, see, I've, I've been aware of that for when I was growing up, my, I learned about HR Geiger who his artwork inspired numerous movies. And that kind of, drew me to that profession when you see somebody's drawing or whatever totally creates an entire character mm-hmm. just by one painting so yeah or one you know a whole set a whole uh feel of a movie is based on one painting like yeah. I, I love that stuff so for 15 years i've been saying to people who will listen god why does anybody listen to me just kidding i'm smart just kidding <laughs> uh i'm doing like a Kristen wig bit at this point just kidding uh <laughs> jesus christ anyway so for years, I've said to people, if I remade Bird of the Crystal Plumage, the first thing I would do is just get a way better, just sadistic, scary piece of art and just make that the centerpiece. What I didn't realize, have you guys ever heard of Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R, Peter Bruegel? He has an, 
a piece of art called Hunters in the Snow. I've heard the name before. Now, I've just been recently made aware of this picture, but if you look at the art style, I shared it on our Facebook group today as a tease for what we were doing. Uh, okay. It is very reminiscent of the art style as well. Um, I It blew me away the first time I saw it. I highly recommend anybody search for it. I'm sending it to you via our chat. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it, and I'm I'm looking at it again. When you right think now, of that perspective, refresher from the 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 painting in this movie. In this context, maybe it isn't that cheap a painting. It's just an art style I didn't expect because I don't I don't have enough experience in fine art to understand what I'm looking at. Hmm. Yeah, if I were to remake this movie, I would get a more impressive bird. <laughs> you really? Or I would just bird. rename the movie. So, did you guys know we talked about borrowing liberally? <laughs> I'm not ignoring you. I'm 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 adding to your point. Uh, no, I got you. So, we talked about how you know there's referencing, and then there's like stealing wholesale, and you know Travis doesn't mm-hmm. like the stealing wholesale. Well, let me tell you about this movie, Stealing Wholesale, from a book and a movie called The Screaming Mimi. Have you ever heard of The Screaming Mimi? Because mm. I certainly hadn't. No, it's like a. She's on like Drew Carey, right? (laughs) So essentially the book is a mystery book. It's pretty much the plot of this movie. And instead of a painting, it's a statue that sets her off on a murder spree. Uh, And it's the screaming Mimi statue is what makes this lady go crazy and start killing people. And they think it's a dude, Mm -hmm. but it's really a chick. Spoiler alert for a movie that you're never going to watch. But you should. I'm Mm -hmm. told I haven't watched it yet. I, I hear it's good. Anyway. If you go back and look at this scene in the antique shop, he's defensively holding a candelabra to kind of keep the the not racist uh, store owner. God, that's a funny line. Uh, keep the <laughs> store owner away from him. Uh, keep a safe distance from the close talker. The mm-hmm. uh, candelabra he's holding is shaped sort of like a screaming Mimi statue. So you've got like this very subtle like Argento tipping his hat to be like, hey, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I stole that uh, thing for that. Nobody catches that because nobody's heard of Screaming Mimi, but it's a good way. It's actually kind of a good move because it's like, I totally stole your thing and didn't pay for it, but I left you a little mm. breadcrumb so you know that I did it. So I, I won't deny it, but like, eh, you know, eh, I like that move. <laughs> That's a good move. Gotcha. Did you guys like Anton Segur in a union jacket? A union Anton. jacket? He, the the hitman guy he's he very much oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. anton yeah the, yes the hitman not a handsome in fellow a union jacket but he's got his boxers union jacket that's <laughs> oh the fighter the fighter yeah, guy the fighters, yeah. who lives in the same porno shack from dirty harry <laughs> yeah they can't shoot a gun and like shoots randomly and can't catch up with a regular person that's trying to run away. Well, like, he's a clone of Django Fett, and so he's, his accuracy is a little off. <laughs> Django Fett. He's got that voice. Love it. Um, can we talk about the trap that she sets at the end? Oh, my gosh, yes. That, that artwork yes. with spikes that are apparently in the correct shape of his body so he doesn't get impaled by any of them. I mean, that's a bit of a reach. <laughs> Lucky, I guess. Yeah, it's... Let me tell you. When when they lift it up, I'm like, all those spikes are on that side, too. Yeah. They're not overly... I thought maybe they were only on the right side, and he was laying on the left, but then when they lifted it up, there were spikes on the right side, too. 
and he didn't catch any of them. He just got lucky. Yeah, in my awesome. remake, he takes if one of the no leg or something. If there was no spikes, he just would have been crushed. Yeah. Uh, but can know. we talk about her, uh, that scene, since we're in spoiler territory, the sexual nature of her behavior on top of him with that phallic knife. I mean, she's, this movie is not as graceful as Psycho, but I think it does a similar thing, right? It handles kind of, edgy topics in a way that age better than you'd expect them to for a movie yeah. from 1970. Certainly. Her acting in that scene, for an actress who doesn't do a whole lot in this movie, she personifies the attacker that she dealt with so well. Right? She mm. she Tommy Jasons it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. her commitment to be like a sexual, almost male roll with this phallic knife i mean she goes for it and she nails it man very cool scene very cool she reminded me of dana zool yeah a little bit (laughs) from ghost ghostbusters like when she's like uh there is no dana only zool scene yeah yes like that that grin she had and the face and the makeup and the hair like i it was totally overacted but obviously she was playing from another mental state so right. it's fine. I mean, if right. you imagine... Which was very Joker-esque. It's very, mm-hmm. like, it's difficult to diagram uh, verbally. But, you know, she is playing how she interpreted the behavior of her attacker. So it's, you know, her doing a caricature of a traumatic event and doing it in such a way that it communicates to him what she felt, even though it's probably way over the top compared to what would have actually happened. But it's really, there's a lot yes. of meat there for a movie that has a gray bird instead of a crystal bird. <laughs> yeah. And I found it funny, like you guys brought it up when Troy was on, how the American slasher, the slasher is just unstoppable, unkillable. Mm-hmm. And she takes a karate chop to the back of the head and it's done. Yeah, because <laughs> like she's human, man. Yeah. Chop. Well, over. Yeah, not, well. I said something. Yeah, well, no, we can't. I, I but I know what it. you're talking about, George. But we can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, exactly. You know what movie I'm talking exactly. about? Exactly. Yes. And that's yeah. Yep. It brings it all back home to the Halloween thing because you expect Halloween always because it's so. Right. Yeah. Well, 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 I didn't expect her to be indestructible, but I just thought it was funny. Like that she goes playing, out like a wuss. Well, she kind of pulls a Boba Fett, like, <laughs> and she does go out like a punk. Judo <laughs> chop. Like, you know, just a little chop. And that was it. You remember back in uh, Friday the 13th when uh, Alice takes a nap in the third act? And I I complained about that quite <laughs> yeah. a bit. Yeah. How could I forget but about that? But then you've got Susie Kendall in this one falling asleep and waking up after her traumatic attack. And I'm just like, man, I guess that's just the thing people did after this movie is they were like, oh, hey, I'm being attacked. The stress, I now sleep. It's very strange. Hmm. It won't be. It was cut in a way where it was almost implying a dream yeah like they edited that to the point where you almost they wanted you to think that that attack didn't happen and she was having a dream yeah even though it did happen yeah i will tell you this is not the last time you're going to see Susie kindle fall asleep in a movie that's as much as i'm going to tell you and hopefully you forget i said it by the time we watch whatever movie i'm referring to (laughs) you're referring to yeah oh my gosh i can't wait till we watch that american movie that i can't tell you the name of because it'll give it away. But the one that steals the ending of Naked Violence and also 
the uh, scene from this movie just wholesale <laughs> because you're gonna see it and you're gonna be like, why have I seen this before? And then we'll talk about it and you'll be like, oh damn it, Dan told me it was gonna happen and it did. Is that this season or next season? <sighs> I haven't. You seen. can't tell me. Okay. Yeah, I can't. Right. I can't tell you because if I tell you, yeah, because it's you probably don't. It. We're just gonna. I can't wait. I'm very excited. We'll do it on the night. Oh, my God. <laughs> on the night. You'll know on the night. You'll know on the it's night. It's hard to coordinate when you're both kind of on the other side of this because I can't, I don't have my guy to bounce stuff off of because you're both on that side. Mm. It's fine. Yeah, we suck. Hey, but bring in the perverts, right? One of the funniest lines in the bring movie. Bring in the perverts. And then for them to <laughs> be very, you know, silence of the lambs and psycho and be like, oh, no, 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 no. Transvestites are not perverts. We want the perverts. You know, that's a good... Right. Yeah, that's I mean, funny. For 1970, that is a good nuanced approach, you know, for in the same era as Dirty Harry, right? A lot more nuance. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> you know what I think... My big, my big problem with the bird, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself. You're on this bird, man. We just, we just watched a movie, Silence of the Lambs, where I was so impressed by the title and mm-hmm. how they how they got to the title of that movie so so impressed by it and then and then juxtapose that to the bird in this movie i think that's why maybe i'm so upset <laughs> just that <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah just that just that uh anyways i'm just psychoanalyzing myself it's fine keep going <laughs> well thank you for watching a movie that is very much more an Italian focused giallo rather than one necessarily meant to sell in America, right? By deep red, mm. they know where the money's at and they're making English actors speak English and they're, you know, they're doing a whole different thing. But this one, his debut, it's very much rooted in a, a context that you guys just aren't in. So I'm, I'm happy that you made it through yeah. five years from now when I've made you watch a hundred jolly you're going to go back to this and be like, man, that is good. And I have seen that everything we've watched since, but I get it. But I still think everybody out there that enjoys any of the eighties slashers and wants to know more about where Halloween comes from deep red. And this are two very, very influential pieces. You know, what's funny. Like I, I, I don't know if you were wrapping up or not, but when I hear about crystal plumage, everybody says it's, it's, iconic horror film i don't i didn't feel any horror i I, it was a thriller it was a murder mystery it was all that but because i'm so american i guess i didn't see it as a horror film there was nothing horrible about it yeah there was nothing scary there was nothing it was just mysterious and it was thought provoking and and you know whodunit all that stuff but i i wouldn't i personally wouldn't put this in a horror genre at all like when i see more like suspense yeah like when you see clips of suspiria you understand why that fits into the horror genre because it just has imagery and yeah a a plot that it fits Mm -hmm. but you know you think of a movie like hellraiser or whatever that's a horror movie which has a lot of the uh context of these giallo films but it's done in a horror feel so you see the horror, you understand the horror. It's mm-hmm. it's a horror movie. Yeah. But these I don't feel like they're horror movies. Yeah, and I think that's part Any of, of it's a failure of nuance on the part of whoever is calling it a horror movie, right? What they're trying mm-hmm. to say 
And they're doing so, I guess, ineloquently. Uh, what they're trying to say is, you know, it's a proto-slasher hybrid of a mystery and a thriller. So when they point mm-hmm. at, well, what is a slasher movie? Well, at Blockbuster, they were in the horror section. Okay, so if a slasher mm-hmm. movie is a horror movie and this inspires a slasher movie, then that must also be a horror movie. I can count on one hand gotcha. the Jalos that actually have frightening elements that you would associate with an omen, a Rosemary's Baby, uh, you know, any of these standard horrific uh, horror movies rather than the slashery violent ones when really giallos for the most part are mysteries thrillers some mm-hmm. are sexy uh, some are like abhorrently violent and malicious and some you know the the sleazier ones kind of border on you know, trash snuff but they're yeah, not scary kind of... they're not scary necessarily unless of course you are easily triggered by razor blades and knives in which case right, right. these are probably hard to watch like you know, if you are a person who has suffered violence or been around someone who suffered violence from an edged weapon, you're not going to want to watch this movie. It is not going to be fun right. because it's a lot of slashing. And it's not necessarily like high five your buddy. Woo. That was cool. Gore slashing either. It's right. personal. Real. It's realistic. Yeah. It tries to be. Yeah. D- it's domestic almost. Yeah. You know, people are, uh, minus the trench coat and the fedora, people are going through this every day. Well, and that's one thing that 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 I love about this movie, that you have to see more of the Baba stuff to know why it's significant. But the Baba stuff all happens in small contained areas. You know, it's in an apartment, it's in a fashion house, it's in a fashion house, it's in a fashion house. I mean, that just covers three (laughs) different movies, but you get my point. Uh He's got a problem with models. <laughs> there's a the, it, each one's a different take on the same thing, but there's three in fashion houses, two in fashion houses, one in a gothic castle that could be a fashion house, whatever. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, Bay of Blood. It takes place in a bay, right? But Crystal Plumage takes place in the entire city of Turin, and yeah, yet right. it's still contained to this small group. But it could be anybody in the city, right? It really just ups the scale a little bit. Oh, it's a cool movie. I don't know if it's the best movie, but it's important as hell, and it's just cool. They're doing stuff here that's never been done, and every movie after it in Italy is going to try to steal something from it because it made money, mm-hmm. and that's really the key. Whether or not you think it's you know, artistically an improvement over Bava, it made money, so now you got to do it too. And then all the stuff that we see in the 70s and 80s in American Slashers is either influenced by this or influenced by something that came from this. The best example right. from that being, we were talking about Umberto Lindsay. Well, Troy's got a book coming up on Lindsay. Everything Lindsay did before Bird is sexy, right? It's like a lady, a guy, a second lady, maybe a second guy. They're in a house. <laughs> There's some money. <laughs> who's going to kill whom and who's going to get laid, Right. Because what Lindsay's doing is basically taking a formula from a movie from France called Diaboliques, and then he's tweaking it mm. to be more boobies, right? Bird of the Crystal Plumage comes out, and right away, Lindsay turns, and suddenly he's doing Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which you guys watched as part of the Halloween thing. And that's a slasher mm-hmm. movie, because he's just, oh, Bird, we kill people now. Okay, let's just kill a bunch of people. Turn the whole thing, man. There's your line. Crystal Plumage, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Halloween. Done. I rest my case.
I started out this podcast with I don't understand why this is important. And that do you? Yeah. I do. <laughs> I do. I rest my case. Thank you for joining us on the Remedial Film Class Podcast special Bird with the Crystal Plumage with Troy Howarth edition. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Remedial Film Pod. You can find us at Facebook.com slash Remedial Film Pod. We have the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Remedial Film Pod. Pretty easy to remember. You should also look up Troy Howarth. Make sure you check out his books and uh, check your Blu-ray collection because you probably already own something with him on it and uh, give it a spin. He's informative and delightful. So thanks to Troy for joining us. Thanks to you for listening to us. We'll be back in one week for our regular times release of First Blood, which we hinted at pretty heavily in this episode. And it's back to bi-weekly after that until we come up with another special episode to slip in there just to keep you on your toes. So in the meantime, head over to Amazon and pick up Murder by Design, the unsane cinema of Dario Argento by Troy. And keep an eye on this space for developments involving a a certain spring occurrence that might be on the way. Uh, Maybe not totally dissimilar from our fall break, but maybe with a little twist. So keep an eye on the feed, and in the meantime, support your local uh, movie geek. We'll see you next week.